That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Well, last week I talked all about the waiting game that you are playing, that I am playing. I'm okay with waiting if the end result ends up being, um, you know, something uh, akin to the marshmallow effect or the marshmallow experience, the experiment that they did at Stanford that uh, that uh, was a study on delayed gratification, 1970s professor at Stanford, offered children a choice between a small but immediate reward or the chance to double their payout if they waited for a period of time. Left the kid alone in the room with a single marshmallow for about 15 minutes. If they didn't eat the marshmallow, they got an extra marshmallow. If they did eat the marshmallow, then uh, they got nothing. And in follow-up studies, the researchers found that children who were able to wait longer had better life outcomes, had better SAT scores, had a better body mass index, BMI. They had higher educational attainment. This uh, this suggests that, you know, if you have the patience to wait, that waiting's not necessarily a bad thing. But here we are. Pac-12 Media Day coming up this week. Will there be an announcement? Will there be some resolution? George Klyovkov, Pac-12 commissioner, will have uh, the podium early Friday morning as part of Media Day. This show will be live from Vegas for Media Day, 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., as we will have uh, Commissioner Klyovkov on the show to talk about whatever developments come on Friday. We've got Dan Lanning, the Oregon football coach, on the show. Jonathan Smith will be on the show, Oregon State coach. Bo Nix will be with us. Caleb Williams will be with us. Coach Prime, Deion Sanders, will be on the show, make his debut, uh, try to get some BFT karma. We will also have his son, Shadur Sanders, on the program as well. So if you're interested and intrigued about Colorado, you're going to want to be here. Kyle Whittingham will be on the show, as will Cam Rising, his quarterback. Uh, Jake Dickert, the Washington State coach, will make an appearance. Kalen DeBoer at Washington. Michael Penix, Jr. I'm basically saying anybody who's anybody in the Pac-12 will be on this program Friday. It should be a lot of fun. But what will George Klyovkov have to talk about? Will he unveil a media deal? See, the last three or four weeks, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but I have. If you follow me on social media, if you're reading me at johnconzano.com, and if you're listening to this show, you know that on Mondays, I generally will tell you, hey, no news this week. I didn't get that indication this week from the Pac-12 CEO group. I got tipped off in each of the last three weeks that there would be no news. Today, I asked, will there be news? Do I need to be alert for anything? Is there anything coming in front of media day? And I got crickets in return. Now, it may be that the uh, conference presidents and chancellors simply want to wait and let George Klyovkov make whatever announcement he has to make on Friday. 
It may be that something's coming down the pipeline in front of Friday. I don't know, but I'm on high alert, and I feel like I'm in the middle of this Stanford marshmallow experiment with one marshmallow on the table, and I'm sitting back going, I know this game. I'm going to wait it out, and let's see what the Pac-12 conference gets. Uh, I mentioned uh, also last week that we're waiting for Damian Lillard. There's been some speculation. The Blazers and the Heat are close. Close to what? I don't know, but uh, anybody who knows the Trailblazers understands they're not in a hurry, uh, not in a hurry, because they're not really moving anywhere and not in a hurry because it's kind of just the way that they operate. Uh, Waiting on that front, waiting on Damian Lillard, waiting on Major League Baseball to Portland, a lot of waiting going on. And on Friday's show, uh, I talked about that, but uh, delayed gratification, not the worst thing. Uh, Steven is in the studio. Judah Newby's in the studio. Guys, um, there's been a little bit of speculation that Brett Yormark, the Big 12 commissioner, could try to upstage Pac-12 Media Day on Friday. I want to ask you guys, how does that fly if Yormark tries to do that? If Yormark makes an announcement, if he tries to say, hey, Gonzaga's coming to the Big 12, or hey, you know, we have extended an invitation to Colorado. Uh, You know, if Colorado even, you know, accepts it or not, uh, that's another conversation. But if Yormark tries to steal the spotlight, does he get backlash for it, or does he get high fives for it from from uh, the Big 12 constituents and from the rest of college football. Well, I think for Big 12 fans, he'll get high fives for it because that's kind of what he's been doing the entire time is he's been out there, out in front of everything, talking about it where the Pac-12 has laid low and hasn't really said anything. Now, I've said this, John, if the Pac-12 on on Friday, Pac-12 Media Day, doesn't come out with something, it's a big-time loss. It's a big-time L, and I think at that point, yeah, then everybody's going to be laughing at the Pac-12 and Brett Yormark's going to announce something. And the Big 12 is going to look like a big winner. But I think if the Pac-12 announces anything, then anything that Brett Yormark announces is going to have no impact at all. Because everyone will be so excited about the Pac-12. And finally, that it will be resolved. All this issue will be done and we'll be done talking about it. And so Yormark, anything he has to say, I don't think it comes close to what the Pac-12 does. So I think as long as the Pac-12 can get something done, then everyone should be happy and the Yormark stuff won't matter. But if nothing is said, nothing is announced on Friday, Yormark comes out and says, Gonzaga is joining the Big 12. Everyone's going to praise the Big 12 and say the Pac-12 is down again. You know? Yeah, and I th- yeah. go ahead, Judah. What, wasn't it last year that you were praising George Klyovkov for pulling out the scalpel a little bit at his yes. Pac-12 media day? Scalpel, not sledgehammer. I like the scalpel. I don't know what your weapon of choice is, but like if I'm on Game of Thrones, I like, you know, I like the plotting that went on in Game of Thrones more than just like, uh, you know, dog coming in and swinging uh, big fists. Would you like it again this year, though? I think he's got to focus on his own conference, and I think he has to stay above it. He stayed above it to this point, but I, I think if George Klyovkov's got news to announce, and it's good news, and it's a media deal, and he comes out and says, we've signed a term sheet, we have a deal, you know, uh, we can't give you all the particulars of the deal, but I can tell you this, it is going to give us uh, a partnership with uh, ESPN, uh, we are going to have the Pac-12 Network games streaming on Apple. We're proud to announce that. Um, uh, and uh, the distributions for our members are going to be, you know, $33 million per year over the uh, term of the deal. I think he, he doesn't need to talk about anybody else but his win. I think the danger he has on Friday is he has nothing to announce. It's a repeat of Basketball Media Day. And as much as he wants to say, Hey, I'm not on. I'm not feeding into the media narrative. I'm not on anybody else's timeline. I think he's got to say something uh, about where they are in the media deal 
And if he doesn't, I think he's going to field a whole bunch of questions, especially from the national media members, don't you? Yeah, for sure. There's no way that this lasts until the season, right? I mean, you can't no. go into the season without a media deal for the next well, year. Could you? I mean, <laughs> but John, didn't we hear right after this, you know, right after USC and UCLA left, they were going to start negotiating. We've heard this for a year. So I don't, it wouldn't be surprising if they go into the season. I, I think, you know, I'm holding nothing back. Like, I think the Pac-12, if they do this and they don't have anything to talk about, it's a big time L. But I, I hope that they have something by Friday. If they don't, I think it's a big loss. The Pac-12 but they mishandled that to this point. Like that, that's kind of like Anna and I disagree. She says, you know, why talk about anything and let, until you have a deal? And I'm like, well, because you've allowed everybody else to take their shots. Like maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that was the strategy. But in today's world, there's an immediacy. There's social media. Your brand is uh, under fire. I think they have to say something. And, Stephen, you were out last week, but the ESPN Disney thing, uh, I had a member of the Pac-12 CEO group tell me that that caused a delay, that they had anticipated late spring, early summer. They're caught in that shift that is happening, the shifting sands. And as I talk to people in the last few days, I keep hearing over and over, it, you know, in that the, the marketplace appears to be shifting and coming to them in a way that is going to be beneficial because, this, you know, they are the only, hey, let's do a deal with Apple. And if Apple's buying ESPN... Guess what? We'll go on ESPN as a linear uh, as a linear product, one game a week, until Apple buys ESPN, and at that point, we'll be 100% streaming. Like nobody else could have that blend of a deal, and they may be uniquely positioned. But if they if that you're right, I, they have to talk about something, don't they, on Friday? They have to, and it's been too silent for too long at this point now. And I understand, like you can go one way. The Big Twelve has gone with Brett Yormark and been out land, you know, been out there and saying a lot of different things. A lot of different schools want to come to the Big Twelve, yada yada yada. But the Pac-12 has said nothing. At some point, you got to say something, or else I'm going to believe that you have absolutely no deals on the table. Nothing is cooking. So I'm with you, John. I got to hear something at least. I would love to hear that a deal is going to be struck. They have a you know have an outline for it or something. But just give me something. Give me something on Friday. Friday is the perfect day to do it. Pac-12 Media Day down in Vegas. I think we got to hear something that day. I'm also interested in Damian Lillard and the Miami Heat and the Blazers. I want uh, I want to know Stephen, you in particular. Report out says, oh, they're close. And yet Joe Cronin says could be months. Um, I believe Lillard starts the season in a Blazers uniform. I, that's where I'm at. And, and until I see a deal and, and see the Blazers do something that's out of character, um, I, I don't think that uh, they'll make a, a deal that's bad for them. But does it damage the season, the brand, the franchise, ticket holders, if this thing lingers? I think it damages some of the fans because um, they'll be upset. They're already upset with what Joe Cronin has done and said um, by saying they want to build around Dame, and now he never really showed any action. It's all it, – the actions speak louder than words. I do think, though, it wouldn't be shocking if Dame is in Portland on tra- during training camp. And at that point, does Dame – if he wants to leave? You know, I've heard some things that maybe Dame doesn't – you know, he's starting to go back and say, you know, maybe I want to stay in Portland. Maybe I don't. I don't know. Nobody really knows what's happening with the Damian Lillard camp. I think there's a lot of questions going on, a lot of cryptic tweets, a lot of cryptic Instagram videos. I don't know, man. I, I think it's just a big whole confusion. I can't wait for it to be settled, but I do think we're in about quarter two now. When you were yes. out and I was hosting, John, I said this is the first quarter. I think we're about to quarter two now with it. You know, now that <laughs> now that we've entered past summer league, uh, I, I, this has a long way to go. And I think Joe Cronin right now is playing it right. If they trade Dane, get the best package available, and don't just give in to the Heat. And I think the Heat have a lot of work to do if they really want to get Dane. But they, you know, they're convinced they got him. I think the Blazers lost quarter one. 
Lillard, Camp Lillard won quarter one. They came out. They set the tone. They asked for the trade. They said, here's our list. Oh, it's Miami. Uh, basically, here's the places that we will go. And, uh, you know, here's the places I'd like to go on vacation this year. Bora Bora, nowhere else. Like, the, you know, no options were provided. There was no Sun River on that list. There was no Oregon Coast on that list. It was, it was I want to go to South Beach, right? And that was it. That was the list. I think Camp Lillard wins quarter one, but I felt like it pivoted towards the end of the first quarter as you see it. And now I think the Blazers are driving this right now because it's evident they're not going to cave in. They're just not going to take a bad deal. They're not going to do a bad deal. They're probably looking over at the Kevin Durant deal and the Rudy Gobert deal, and they're going, we need something like that or we're not going to, we're not trading him. And they don't have to. They, they don't. You know, Dame signed that contract. And, you know, that's the one thing is, especially in the NBA, you know, these players, they sign these big time contracts. And then before the deal even kicks in, they're demanding to be traded or requesting to be traded. And it's one of those things where, yes, you want to do right by the player and you want to do, you know, do what's best for the franchise at the same time. But, you don't want to make a player mad because that stuff does get around. But at the same time, you have to capitalize on a guy like Damian Lillard if you're really going to trade him. you got to get assets back that help because right now with Scoot Henderson, Shaden Sharp, you know, even Jeremy Grant's a good player right now, Anthony Simons, they have a solid core of players that they're a lot. I think, you know, I don't think they're very good by any means, but they have a great starting point. So you got to continue to add on to that with valuable assets, valuable young players. And you can't just give in to what everything that Damian Lillard wants. So I think no. I think I think Cronin's, you know, you're right. Start of the second quarter, Cronin's team, they've come out, they've passed the ball around, got some ball movement, hit some threes. <laughs> they got some ball movement. Yeah, they're they're <laughs> catching up in the game. They might be down a little bit still, but you know, they're within striking distance. Let's go to the phone lines. I want your calls. We're talking about the waiting game that is being played with the Pac twelve conference. Will it be an all streaming platform? Will it be streaming and a little linear to start? Who knows? George Klyovkov will uh, take the uh, podium on Friday. I am uh, being told that the Pac-12 feels like there's no deadline, there's, there's no timeline, that something shifted internally in their favor and they feel good about where they are. But I think, you know, it would behoove the conference to come out and have something to talk about on Friday that is positive and forward-thinking and does not overshadow Pac-12 football media day, that that, that day does not become all about, oh, why don't you have a deal? Why aren't you talking about the fact that you don't have a deal? Uh, also, I want to talk about the Blazers and Damian Lillard. 503-417-7575 is the number. Let's go out to uh, to Mitch, who's calling in from San Jose, California. Mitch, welcome to the show. Johnny Ballgame, how you doing? Doing well. Hey, I think streaming is going to kill sports because I saw a commercial the other day. If you don't have this streaming app, you can't watch all the NFL playoff games. And if you take a conference like the Pac-12, and say, okay, you got to get this app and stream it. Okay, you'll stream it for the season. After that, you cut that stream, unless there's something else good on that stream. And I just flat out don't get it. To me, I miss the days of, hey, NBC, ABC, ESPN, boom, there's your sports. You're all covered. I just do not understand it at all. And I will not pay the money to do it. I'd rather listen to it on my Sirius XM app when I'm out with my dog on a hike or at the beach or whatever. Who's your favorite NFL team? Oh, God. Minnesota Vikings. Jeez. Okay, let's I, say. I, I, don't even get me started with that. <laughs> let's say the, uh, the second coming of Bud Grant ends up on the sideline and the Minnesota Vikings end up in the AFC, uh, NFC championship game and they win and 
uh, or let's say they're going to the NFC Championship game, but that game is going to be streamed on, you know, Paramount. Uh, let's just use it hypothetically, Paramount. You're going to pay the eleven ninety nine. You're going to subscribe to no, Paramount no, because you want to see no. it. No, no, I won't. I won't do that because you know why? I could go on YouTube twenty minutes after the game and watch the whole game with all the highlights and all the scoring and everything for free. Why would I pay for the app? Well, YouTube might be and charging you by then anyway. I can listen to it live. Luckily, you're not going to have to worry about the Vikings getting to the Super well, Bowl. They, exactly, right? <laughs> Appreciate you, man. There he is. Uh, I love that. I, do you guys think, see, I I think, depending on your age, this is this is the debate. It it really is about how how old are you. We're not asking, do you think that, Streaming will work for live sports programming. Bob Iger, the president of Disney, CEO of Disney, basically came out and said, hey, live sports is one of the only things that's really working when it comes to this. But so I'm really asking you how old you are, because I think that the allergy to streaming, I had this conversation with my dad, the allergy to streaming relates to discomfort. And there is a barrier there. My parents still on direct TV. I tried to get them to go to Hulu. I tried to get them to sign up for Netflix. It's too much. It's overwhelming for them. I'm going to have to fly down and show them how to use it. But I, I feel like that there is a there's so much cord cutting going on. And Bob Iger talked about this last week. He says it's you know it's killing linear TV. There's a real trend to to uh, everybody streaming. And eventually ESPN will be an all streaming platform. And he knows when the date is. Said he knows when it is. I think it's going to be. I think he's talking about two years from now. But here he is talking about live sports content. And this is why Disney, ESPN, and others will stay in live sports. You're spending more and more money to do that. I mean, to keep the NBA, to keep the NFL, essentially renting the content that keeps this thing alive. I mean, is that the best use for your capital? Well, I know a lot's been said about renting versus owning. And um, if, if you can rent it and, and continue to be profitable from renting it, which we have been and we believe we will continue to be, then there's real value in staying in it. You know, we're not, we're, we're, uh, we have great relationships with Major League Baseball and, and the National Hockey League and various college conferences and, of course, the NFL and the NBA. And, and it's not just about the live sports coverage you know, of those leagues those teams. It's also about all the shoulder programming that throws off on ESPN and what you can do with it in a streaming world. You know, as a direct-to-consumer proposition, I talked about it being technology-friendly in yeah. a way. There's so much more that can be done with it in terms of the way it's distributed, the way it's consumed. It's interesting just thinking about the Apple announcement of a few weeks ago and what the possibilities there, you know, that, that device lends itself to in terms of sports. Bob Iger talking about uh, Disney's decision. Uh, they've obviously splintered off ESPN. They're looking for an equity partner now for ESPN. Uh, if you look at today's media landscape, sports stands very, very tall in terms of its ability to convene millions and millions of people all at once. Uh, there's almost a guarantee that that occurs. It's an advertiser's dream. There's a great demographic there. It lends itself to technology in many ways, both in terms of coverage, distribution, and consumption and our position in that business is very unique we have a great brand we've had a great business and we want to stay in that business look we've, we've got a great brand he's talking about ESPN we've had a good business it's not a good business anymore the linear 
model is eroding. There's erosion. They're losing penetration. The people are dropping their linear programming. They're not playing Comcast and subscribing to 15 different channels. You know what you're doing. You're on Hulu or you are on Netflix and you're streaming Paramount or YouTube. And, you know, you are diversified within your own ecosystem. I mean, we're doing it in our household. We're watching, uh, you know, Netflix last night. We're watching that show uh, Diplomat. You guys have watched The Diplomat? Steven, you need to check out The Diplomat. Never uh, never checked out The Diplomat, no. What, what my, uh, one of my good friends uh, turned me on to that, and you know what? It's really good. Um, all right, coming up, we're going to talk to Matt Preem, 24-7 Sports. What's he looking to hear specifically about the Oregon Ducks? I'll weigh in on the Beavers. What do I want to hear this week from Jonathan Smith? He's bringing a couple players with him. And by the way, Jonathan Smith at Oregon State is continuing a tradition. His tradition is that he never brings his quarterback to media day. He will, again, not bring a quarterback. He is not going to name a starting quarterback at media day. We'll talk about the Beavers and the Ducks next. Well, the University of Oregon will be among the teams uh, on Friday at Pac-12 media day. Dan Lanning, the Ducks coach, will be enduring his second media day. Uh, He will have Bo Nix along with him, among uh, others, and uh, Matt Preem, 24-7 Sports. Does a hell of a job covering Oregon, great follow on Twitter. He's taken up golf as a hobby. He is also a smoker and a, not a smoker in the bad sense, but a smoker and a barbecue guy. What do we call that? Do we say, like, how do you introduce yourself, like, when you're talking to people about all the meats that you smoke and cook? You're not a smoker, but what are you? No. Uh, I would say I would. I enjoy to partake in the uh, barbecue festivities. <laughs> I love that. He enjoys to partake in the barbecue festivities, and here he is. Um, hey, how's your golf game before we get into this stuff? You've been playing like a maniac. I follow you on all your socials, and you, you're out there any chance you can get. Oh, yeah. Uh, I try and take it as much as I can. Um, some guys I grew up with dating back as far as first grade, we just went to Bend and uh, I'm the, we play at a golf tournament. It's called the boys invitational. And, uh, I'm the second best golfer of the group. Me and the first best golfer, we came in uh dead last and second to last. So our games are not good right now. Well, that's, that's rough. That's the, that's why that game, it humbles you. Will you play in Vegas? Yeah. It's only going to be about 120. Will you play I'm, there? I'm researching it. That's what we're at right now, John. Um, See, I'm crazy. I, I know I'm psycho. The heat doesn't bother me as long as, <laughs> as long as there's no humidity, which there won't be. Um, the heat doesn't bother me. It, it's not. It's not an issue. Like I, I wanted to go golf uh, a couple days ago down here in Eugene when it was 100 degrees outside. I was like, oh, this is like perfect weather to go golfing. Like I, I, I'm psycho. I know it's not normal. I, I know I have problems, but that's where my mind is at. Give me an idea. Like, what do you do? Do you get a tea time of like 4:30 in the morning? Is that how you do it at that that kind of heat, or what do they do? Do you know? Oh, I mean, if I, if I, yeah, you can play at 5.30 in the morning. I know that's a big thing in Phoenix, um, just down the street. Uh, I'm assuming it's the same thing there in Vegas. Um, those are the prime tea times, but I'm cheap. I'm a sports journalist. Uh, I, I'm totally cool with going out there at 1 o'clock when it's going to be 112 degrees. Just bring water. Let's see it. Let's see it. Make sure you hydrate. Uh, Matt Prem, 24-7 Sports with us. All right, the questions for Media Day. Dan Lanning will speak, uh, among others, but what do you want to hear from Oregon's coach uh, this Media Day? Um, I, I hope we get a, a legit answer, not the generic version of it, but just I'm curious of just what the learning curve was like year one for him because 
there was a lot of good that happened in 2022, um, but it started off with a humbling 49 to three loss to the champs, Georgia. And then I think, what did you learn about, you know, managing a game like in Washington uh, when your most important player goes down with an injury? How, how do you better prepare yourself for something like that? Can you be more better prepared? Uh, And then the Oregon state game when, you know, you literally just couldn't stop the run. Um, And you had some questionable play calls in those situations, in those games. Uh, I, I think for him it would be just what did you how do you how do you improve how do you take a step personally from year one to year two as a head coach we always hear coaches talk about year two in the system for a player it, it you know they make a leap and bounds jump what do we see out of Dan Lanning in his you know year one to year two jump and then you know I, I'm kind of curious AI seems to be the hot topic uh, right now across all spectrums of life. Um, I, I kind of want to throw him a curveball and be like, do you see AI helping at all in the coaching world? Mm. I love that. Uh, the, you know, I'm, I'm curious too, because I think a lot of times we, we dismiss the recruiting part of coaching and it is, you know, we think of coaching as X's and O's in preparation and fall camp and game management, but recruiting is such a big part of it and we all know it, but how did, how did you like, how do you, when you look at the off season for Dan Lanning, this first off season, did he right. get did he get better? Did he get better players than than maybe uh, you would have expected off just a you know a pretty good first season? Yeah, I I think the fact that they went out and they landed um one five-star player speaks volumes. It's a defensive end, edge player Mateo Ungalele. Um I I think that fits his persona so that helps a little bit, you know, hey is Dan Lanning going to line a five-star? Yeah, it's going to be at a defensive end or an edge-type player. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. But for a long time, uh, he had a quarterback that was a five-star. And if Kenny Dillingham was still the offensive coordinator, that probably still – that kid is still here. Um, but to then be able to, to pivot like he did and to flip Nova Sad, who was almost a top-ten quarterback in the country, I think that's impressive. I think you look at – the fact that they landed one of the best athletes in the country in Kenyon Sadiq, who's going to be a tight end for Oregon. Um, you look at their list of, of commits, and a lot of these guys in his first class uh, are, are are on the offensive side of the football. And, and I, I, I'm remissing here. Uh, he had signed not one but two five-star players, Draymond Dickey, a receiver. Um, he, he's on campus now. So, I, I think he's done a really good job from a recruiting perspective, but where I'm probably most impressed is his ability to flip the roster via the portal. And they've added, what, 15, 16, 17 transfers. And it's the ability to find players that are starters at other schools. Nico Reed was a was an, almost an all-conference caliber cornerback for Colorado, one of the few good players that they had last season. Gary Bryant Jr. was a fantastic return specialist for USC. Uh, he's gone out and added a couple of starters from Ole Miss. He, he took Evan Williams, um, Bennett Williams, younger brother. Many people thought Evan was going to go to the NFL, not uh, go back to college at a different school. Jordan Birch, Tez Johnson, you know, Cornelius, Angelau, two linemen there. Uh, he took two starters from Alabama. Um, I, I, Justin Jacobs is another starter from Iowa. So I, I think his re- high school JUCO traditional air quotes recruiting was pretty good. 
But I was really impressed with what they were able to do from a transfer portal perspective of going out and landing guys from all levels of football, power five, group of five, and FCS, and find guys that are starters and add them to the mix. They might not be starters here at Oregon, but look, if, if you've got a group of five starter that's an all-conference player and he shows up and is, is good with being a guy that is a air quotes role player, air quotes off the bench, your depth takes a huge jump. And that's something that he commented on the first day of spring ball was their depth was night and day better um, from when it was when he first arrived. And a lot of these guys, they were here at spring ball for that. We're talking to Matt Prem, 24-7 sports. Uh, Bo Nix will be there as well. He came back. Yep. Big NIL deal, of course. Uh, big advantage for Will Stein, his offensive coordinator. What do you want to ask Bo Nix? Just what did last year teach you? You know, you were so good um, in your in your four-year career, that your senior year. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm curious to, to how, you know, see what he says to just, what last year taught him and, and how can he replicate what he did last season? And some of that may, you know, how much of that is because there's familiarity with Kenny Dillingham, who's no longer here, the head coach at ASU, who will be speaking right after Bo Nix. Um, will Stein's the new OC, but just how much does that confidence of, you know, every athlete has confidence. You can't be at that level and, and trust and not trust yourself. But I, I, I'm sure if you gave him some, some true serum, there'd be a little bit of some, you know, feeling of, hey, yeah, when I left Auburn, I wasn't in a good place. I wasn't playing good. Our program wasn't winning. And and to be able to make that big jump, you know, in, in year one at Oregon, uh, it's got to be pretty gratifying. And, you know, I'd, I'd just be curious to know what, you know, what what, uh, what did that, that year teach you and how can you take those lessons to apply them into this season to ensure that you're as good, if not better, because, there, I, I feel like, John, there's more pressure on Bo this year than there was last year to be good and and to, to make sure that Oregon is as good, if not better, than they were um, a year ago. Just because, okay, you've gone out and shown it. And if, if, if last year didn't happen for Bo Nix and it didn't really work out and all of a sudden, uh, you know, a different quarterback in November is in the, in the field at, uh, for Oregon instead of Bo Nix in 2022 and Oregon's seven and five at the end of the year, you know, I, I, I think there'd be some surprise there, but there would also be some kind of like, well, yeah, like he really wasn't the elite quarterback when he showed up. There was definitely some hot or cold feelings on his addition when he showed up uh, and, and, and season maybe got away from him and they, and they went to a different direction to build towards the future. I think there's more pressure this year on Bo to, to be really good than there was last season. Is he better equipped to handle it? Oh yeah, I, I, I'm I'm really impressed with with Bo. Um, just from a mental standpoint, off the field standpoint, he's up there with Marcus Mariota and Justin Herbert in terms of deflecting the noise, deflecting the pressure, deflecting the praise, um, and just he, look. He's the son of a high school football coach. He's been around the game a ton. Um, he is as good if you know, as if not the best that Oregon's had from you know handling pressure, handling the media, handling all the expectations that come with playing that position, fair and, and unfair. And he's right up there with Mario and Herbert. I am really interested, uh, again, to hear George Klyovkov, the, the Pac-12 commissioner, talk. Um, do you think, are you among those who believe he's got to address the media deal, or how does he address that, you know, in the morning session where 
he steps onto the podium. Yeah, I've tried not to. I let you and Wilner handle the reporting on, on <laughs> yeah, the thanks. actual deal. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, and look, it's going to come from someone like you guys, where you know you're not just dialed into one school like I am. Um, and and so, but I do think he's got to address it, and because if the more you don't. And the more you just say, hey, there's things coming in, in the future, we, we feel confident, uh, and, and that's all you say, and you, you wish the question away, the more it just becomes fairy tale, tale land. Like, we've heard this same line for over a year now, it feels like, where, hey, we're confident it's going to get done. We're confident uh, things are going to work out. We're good. We're happy. We're in a good place. We're, we're going to be here. And you just keep saying the same thing over and over again. Yeah. And you, you, you can't say that. You have to address it, whether it's good or bad. Um, I, I hope he embraces it. I hope he opens up a little bit about it. I mean, how sweet it would be if that's the first thing he says. Is, hey, I'm, you know, in his monologue that the, that the commissioners always do when they open these press conferences, is, you know, tout their league, you know, throw in the, hey, oh, by the way, we've, we've signed a deal with XYZ and here we go. Um, I, you, you've got to address it in some standpoint. Uh, we are talking to Matt Prem, and we are uh, just days away from Pac-12 Media Day. All right, so um, uh, other other personalities in the conference. Uh, Deion Sanders will be there, Coach Prime, yeah. Shador Sanders. You know, if is there another interview that you you go, I got to sit in on that one. It's got to be Dion. I mean, simply because I'm about to be 37, and that's the guy that you know when I watched NFL as a kid, like was the most electrifying people on earth. Um, it's kind of like Bo Jackson was playing both sports, you know, he's yeah. playing baseball and he's playing football. And, you know, like I, that just to me is, is, is cool. Uh, I, I want to be in the room for when he speaks. I hope to be in there. I just to listen to him talk, listen to, you know, the whole press conference and see it. You know, we've seen press conferences with him on, on, on video, whether it's on YouTube, Twitter, or whatever, Facebook. Um, I kind of want to see if like, that's how they really go or if there's been some editing or what have you. Hmm. Uh, that's, that's one for me. Um, there's also a, a Heisman winner in the building, Caleb Williams. Um, that would be another one for me. I would really like to hear that one. Um, and then I would love to hear just Lincoln Riley and Chip Kelly, just because what's their persona like, what's the SC UCLA school persona like, cause this is the last year they're going to be technically in the PAC 12, uh, as we know it in the Pac-12's current form, uh, as we know it, what's, what's the vibe going to be with those two schools? Cause it was pretty, it felt hostile last year. Uh, and the league I feel like is appears publicly outside the inner walls of the conference, more vulnerable today than it was this time last year. Yep. Uh, Matt Prem, I appreciate you. And uh, let me know if you play golf. I'm curious to see how that goes. Make sure you hydrate, man. If you do get out there. I will. I will. I'll, I'll be smart. So, but hydrate with water, not other stuff. Yeah, I'll ready. see. And I'll see you Friday. Uh, see you Friday. Sounds good. Resorts World. All right, Matt Prem. There he is. Twenty four seven Sports. Uh, and for those just tuning in, Pac twelve Media Day Friday. We will be live three to six p.m. I will have Caleb Williams on the show. I will have Lincoln Riley on the show. We will have Coach Prime on the show. Dan Lanning, Jonathan Smith, Bo Nix. Who else? We'll get them all. Commissioner Klyovkov on the show. Anybody who's anybody in the Pac-12, we'll have them one-on-one. -on -one. They'll do a group setting with media, but then they will climb to the third floor of Resorts World on Radio Row 
after the morning sort of introductory news conference, uh, they will start filtering in, and I will begin interviewing, and we will, from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., share every interview. We won't give you the group setting stuff. We'll give you the one-on-ones. You'll hear me talking with the players, coaches, and personalities in the Pac-12. Leave it here. SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey uh, speaking today at the Grand Hyatt in Nashville, Tennessee, part of the uh, SEC's media day. He used the bulk of his time on stage repeating a message that he has uttered on this show and uh, across the country over the last few uh, few months and and even the last couple of years, really. He, he talked about name, image, likeness. He is uh, repeating a message that um, that uh, I think a lot of other conference commissioners are talking about. Uh, Greg Sankey uh, speaking uh, about two weeks ago with Joel Klatt said this. I don't think there's anyone right now who says we stop or we fully we, we pull fully back to where we were. Mm-hmm. But in essence, we have to think about the protections for young people so that they're not signing for what seems like a lot of money at 18 years old, and all of a sudden they're a first-round draft pick at 23, and they realize there's an entanglement, and now they're in a court case uh, without the type of cleanliness around these deals that that would be much more optimal. Yep. We have to adjust this system, yeah. and we need help to do it, to do it properly. He's talking about Congress, and he doubled down today. He said the reality is only Congress can fully address the challenges facing college athletics. He said the NCAA cannot fix name image likeness. The courts cannot resolve the issues. The states cannot resolve the issues and nor can the conferences. He talked about uh, NIL and the future of college athletics. Uh, it's going to be interesting. They'll become a 16 team conference in 2024. And uh, Greg Sankey was asked about the SEC potentially getting larger. Well, that is the subject of our big splash. Will they add teams? Let's do it. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The big splash. Greg Sankey, speaking at SEC Media Day, was asked about the possibility of the SEC growing beyond 16 teams. He shut it down. He said, quote, I've watched others message about we're not done yet. He said, I just don't think that's healthy. People can criticize me and say, wow, you really sprung it on people in 21, which we did. Maybe there's no clean and perfect way to deal with conference membership, but it's not been the topic in the Southeastern Conference other than providing updates. We're very attentive to what's happening around us. Do I think it's done? Well, people will say I get to decide that right now. It appears that others are going to decide that before we have to make any decisions. My view is we know who we are, and we're comfortable as a league. You go bigger, and there's a whole other set of factors that have to be considered with that. I'm not sure I've seen those teased out other than when my mind played played it out. Uh, Greg Sankey basically saying, uh, you know, we're we're okay at 16, and we may not have to make a decision. was that a uh, was that a subtweet? Was that throwing a little shade at Brett Yormark there, Stephen? We're not done yet. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, because Brett Yormark's come out and he's basically said like, you know, we'll take on anybody. You know, they're bringing in UCF and uh, Houston, Cincinnati. Uh, I'm blanking on UC or I'm blanking on the other one, but you know, BYU, the other four teams this next season. 
Um, and he's been talking about UConn and Gonzaga. Like, they want as many as possible. But I think the SEC is in a spot where, like you said, and like Greg Zanke said, they're, in a, they're comfortable with where they are, and they kind of run college football. Why would they need to add any of these extra teams? Yeah, they don't you know, have to. They don't have to. They got Texas. They got Oklahoma. Like, those are two big brands. All right, cool. We understand that. Who else are you going to go after and get? You can't get USC and UCLA. Like, they're gone. So I think they're in a great spot. They don't need to add teams. They, they're in a perfect spot because they, they run college football. Yeah, they do, and they matter. They're relevant, and and he's right. When you start to uh, add more teams, you start talking about diluting your media rights uh, package, and if you don't have the right media markets coming into your footprint, you're now talking about, you know, hey, in the Southeastern Conference, if you don't have all the big cities in the South already captured, which I think they do in the SEC, you now look at going, okay, do they get in? Do they Do they try to go to... Chicago? Do they try to go to, uh, you know, the northeastern part of the United States and some of the larger media markets? Do they try to go to Dallas-Fort Worth? Do they do they try to go west? Well, all of a sudden, you're not the Southeastern Conference anymore. And David Shaw said that last year on Pac-12 Media Day when we talked on the show. He said that he felt geography would ultimately win out. I think there's a lot of people going to be interested to see how USC and UCLA fare when they go to the Big Ten because um, there is a competitive uh, balance that that you have to have in order to compete in that conference. There's just a competitive nature and a uh, a degree of proficiency you have to have in football, or you don't matter. And then you throw on the travel on top of it, and it starts to get tricky. Nebraska figured that out. Bill Moose said that the days of going ten and two at USC and UCLA are 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 done. He said at Nebraska we found it incredibly difficult to travel and stay competitive. We'll see what happens. So if you're the SEC, you got Alabama, you got Georgia, and some other years you have Auburn and LSU. You have dominated the four-team college football playoff. You have a great media deal. You are healthy and vibrant. You are so healthy and vibrant that you are able to fund your non-revenue-generating sports like women's basketball at levels that others aren't. South Carolina spent $11 million on women's basketball. It's the number one program in the country when it came to uh, spending on women's college basketball. Guess who was second? LSU at $9.5 million. LSU walks off national champion winner. You can say, hey, LSU has uh, you know had great coaching. You can say they recruited well. They had good players. You could just say it was their year. But it's really hard for me to not look at the Elite Eight and then and go, wait a minute. Most of the teams that were spending most of the money in women's college basketball made it to that round. Like that, that there's a correlation directly between spending and you know being able to hire a coach like Kim Mulkey and and spend that kind of money at LSU and have Don Staley at South Carolina and to fund those programs. You know how is that possible? Well, it's possible because the SEC is cleaning up with its media rights deal. Well, and don't you think that you talk about geography as well? I mean, it seems like the people down in the South, you know, it just means more crowd. Like, it really does. Yeah. I mean, like, you, they don't have the fit. And you talk about geography, but it's also the fit and the culture of these schools and these teams. Like, if they go out and they get schools, you know, from the Northwest, they don't have the same, you know, craziness that those people in the South do. So I, I think, like, they don't need to go out and add these teams. They have all the craziness that they need and all that they want. And it's really, you know, they've parlayed that into so much success money-wise and team-wise in all the sports. Yeah, and I think... You have just a halo effect. It's a ripple effect, right? Is you know, and, and again, I'll go back to what UCLA athletic director Martin Jarman told me shortly after the Bruins left. You know, he's a Big Ten guy. 
And a lot of people looked at Jarmon and said, oh, gosh, there was a guy who was probably tugging UCLA towards the Big Ten. And I said to him, I said, I had one question for him. I just said, hey, how do, how do Pac-12 schools that are left behind in the Pac-12 who are getting like, well, let's just say they're getting $34 million a year in media rights distributions, how do they compete with the Big Ten schools that are getting $68 million? Okay, you're getting half as much money. How do you stay competitive? And he said, you're not going to see it in football. He said, Oregon, Washington, you know, Utah, Colorado, they're still going to fund football at a level that is, uh, you know, com- competent or comparative to other schools in the Big Ten and the SEC. You're not going to see Oregon and Washington go, oh, we don't have the money there, so we're going to pull back in all areas. No, no, no. He said they're going to pull back in areas like non-revenue generating sports. So you're going to see the tightening of the purse strings in baseball and in track and field and volleyball and golf and tennis and other sports. Keep an eye on that as this thing kind of unfolds. Coming up, we will play Punch and Audio. We got great sound. Uh, Greg McElroy talking about his top team in the Pac-12. Who is it? It's not USC. McElroy crawling out on a limb. Also, uh, you got Bruce Feldman and Yogi Roth talking about Oregon State. You might be surprised with what they said about the Beavers. And Adam Schefter talking about how quietly good the Packers look right now. Plus, Steph Curry, how do he spend his weekend? You may have seen it on social media, but you'll hear it right here. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT statewide. I really appreciate that you're long for the ride. We are one hour in the books, two hours to go on uh, a week that should be a big week. Will there be news? I'm making calls on the commercial breaks. I do have some intel on the Pac-12 front, what George Klyovkov will say on Friday. I'll share some of that coming up. Leave it here. The Denver Nuggets and the Los Angeles Lakers have played for a spot in the NBA Finals twice in the last four seasons. If, if, if you rewind to, Walt, to the bubble in Walt Disney World, then, you know, these teams, at least on paper, appear to be, you know, hunting for the same trophies at the same time. That generally sparks a rivalry. And then you had uh, you had Mike Malone kind of celebrating, and you had uh, Darvin Ham, you know, talking on a podcast with Chris Haynes, basically... Um, Basically uh, pointing out that uh, Mike Malone, Money Mike, was uh, was uh, celebrating a little too hard after the championship. Is there a rivalry between the Lakers and the Nuggets? Is that a reach? Like you would think, like, you know, if the Packers and the Niners had played for the NFC Championship twice in four years, or the Seahawks and the Niners, we would go, hey, there's a budding rivalry going on there. But in a weird way, they haven't, like, the, the, the games haven't been all that close. And the way that the Nuggets kind of dispatched and dismissed the Lakers this last year, I don't know how much of a rivalry it is. Is it a rivalry or a budding rivalry in your mind, Stephen? No, I, I don't consider it a rivalry. I think a lot of fan bases hate the Lakers in general. Like, do the Blazers and Lakers have a rivalry? Not really. I think Blazer fans hate the Lakers. So I think it's more that the Nuggets don't like the Lakers and the Lakers fans feel like they're above everybody and they only you know go for championships. That's their rivalry. So I don't think it's a budding rivalry at all. Uh, I just think it's two pretty well-run organizations right now in the NBA. And they, you know, they're, they're competing for the NBA Finals a lot. 
who in the West would you pick to get to the Western Conference Finals? Which, who's your matchup next season if you had to open the crystal ball? Because mm. if you're, you're you got to put Denver in there, right? Got to. Even though they've lost some pieces, they haven't they they haven't lost Nikola Jokic. They haven't lost Jamal Murray. So you kind of you go okay, they're back. But who would you put in there with them? I do love what the Lakers have done this offseason. Um, I think for me it'd be down between the Lakers and the Suns. I probably would lean Suns right now. I, it's not. I just I think talent is the biggest thing in the NBA, and I understand that we're going going away from that a little bit, and we think team building and uh, you know having the best role players is the perfect fit in the NBA. I still think talent is going to be the overwhelming thing. And Frank Vogel coming into Phoenix to be their new head coach, he's dealt with you know high end talented guys that got them to play defense. LeBron and AD got a championship in LA with them. So I think with Bradley Beal coming into Phoenix, Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, they're going to fill out the rosters with some more veterans that they maybe can play in the playoffs. I, I think I would put the Suns in there, uh, taking on the Nuggets. There it is, and you also have Durant, and you know stars driving that narrative, or at least that preseason narrative. All right, let's jump into Punch It Audio. We got great sound, including Chip Kelly, Chauncey Billups, Steph Curry, and more. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, Steph Curry hit a hole-in-one at the Celebrity Golf Tournament in Lake Tahoe. Courtesy of NBC Sports, here's Curry with a hole-in-one punch. It's obvious he can really play. Boy, this is right at it if it gets there. How about that? Oh, 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 are you kidding me? Oh, oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> well, hey, Rod, all I'll say is this. I think he pulled the right clock. gracious he may not stop till he gets to the bay area steph curry uh with the hole in one he's not talking about wanting to be traded he isn't taking his talents to south beach he's just making buckets and and uh hole in ones i was gonna say birdies but <laughs> he's better than that sabrina Ionescu uh set a record in the uh, three-point shooting contest at the WNBA All-Star Game. Steph Curry was asked about uh, Ionescu's big moment. She scored 37, breaking Curry's record. Steph says they need to do a head-to-head contest. Punch it. Well, now I got I got to go after Sabrina's record, so I got something to shoot for now that she went crazy with the 37 points in their All-Star Weekend. So I guess... We got to settle that one for sure. Mm. Who's the better three-point shoot, three-point uh, competition shooter? There it is. There's the challenge. That was uh, greatness, and it was the kickoff for a WNBA All-Star Weekend. She scored 37 out of a possible 40 points. By the way, Steph Curry 
his best NBA three-point shooting performance is 31 out of 40 points. And Sabrina did respond to that. She did quote tweet and said, "Let's get it" with a bunch of smiley faces. So uh, that would that doesn't she already have it? Like he, like he, like you know, he hasn't. He's not even. He's not even close. No, like that's the thing. She doesn't have to do anything. Steph's got to catch up to her now. She she needs to sit back and just relax on the throne. Just uh, you know, work on your game, man. Yeah, playing too much golf, Steph. <laughs> that's the problem. Uh, Jim Bowden talking to CBS Sports about Shohei Otani. The Angels are only six games out of the wild card. Otani's got 34 home runs. Bowden says there is one good plan that the Angels need to follow, and it involves this. Punch it. The Angels clearly want to try to hold on to him. Uh, if they can stay in a race, they want to try to make the playoffs with him and then try to sign him as a free agent. But I think we all know they've never been above 500 with Otani since they signed him, and it's unlikely this team's gonna make the playoffs. He's gonna be a free agent, and to just get draft pick compensation would be ridiculous. So I think over the next 15 days, there is a good possibility he does get actually traded, which as unpopular as it's going to be, it is the right baseball and business decision for the Angels. Shohei Otani this season, 34 home runs, 73 RBI through 94 games. That is the exact same total that Aaron Judge had a year ago through 94 games. Here's the difference. Otani's hitting 301. Judge hit 282 through 94 games. Otani's on-base percentage is 386. Uh, Judge had a 366 on-base percentage. And Otani's slugging percentage is 665. Aaron Judge had a 619 slugging percentage. Otani better with average on base percentage and slugging percentage. He's having a better season. And, oh, by the way, the guy pitches. Um, you know, look, I, I guess you could ask him to play shortstop or center field, but Otani's having a better season than Aaron Judge had a year ago. I think the right move for the Angels is to try to keep him and re-sign him. I think you do that even if you're running the risk, even if you feel like you're running the risk, that you may lose him in the off season. The Giants may be a suitor for him in free agency. Other teams may. But if as long as we're talking about Aaron Judge, how about the idea of Aaron Judge, remember, re-signing with the Yankees in the offseason, despite having options? There is something about that familiarity. Remember, Otani had choices when he came uh, you know, into the United States in Major League Baseball where he wanted to sign, and it was a strategic move to go to the Angels. He, he wanted California. He wanted Southern California. And let's see if he is happy enough to stay there. Well, and we talked about this. Otani, four more home runs than everybody in the, in all of Major League Baseball. He's also fourth in strikeouts per nine innings and 19th in war for pitching. Like, he's an all-star caliber pitcher and, the, and maybe the best hitter in all baseball. Like, this guy does things that is insane. And for the Angels to not capitalize and make the playoffs ever with this guy, it would be a shame if the Angels hang on to him and lose him for just draft picks. Like, they... They're not going to make the playoffs this year, probably, John. They, they probably need to trade him. I know, but they were, you know, it was, what, about a day ago, they were only four games out of the wild card. My, Mike Trout's know? out, though. Maybe uh, maybe get him to your Giants, huh? How about that? I would love to see it. I think it'd be good for his brand. But you know what? I, I don't like seeing star players leave teams. I, I would rather see the Angels build around him and figure it out. Why am I saying that? Well, Damian Lillard. Adam Schefter, meanwhile, spocking, talking about Jordan Love. He will be the next guy in after Aaron Rodgers. Jordan Love, how confident are the Packers? Well, here's here's uh, Shefty with a with a peek. 
punch it. The players have raved about him, and we've had a Hall of Fame quarterback in Green Bay now for basically 35 years. So Packers fans, in a certain sense, are spoiled with the quarterbacks that they've gotten to watch. But Jordan Love has made steady progress backing up Aaron Rodgers, watching him, observing, learning. And I think there's a real quiet confidence about the level of success that he's going to have this year. Think about where they took him. Think about the glimpses of talent that he did show in the spot duty that he was called upon to replace Aaron Rodgers those couple of times when Aaron Rodgers didn't play. And I think the players have extreme confidence in Jordan Love right now in him stepping in. And I don't want to say he's going to be the next Hall of Fame quarterback, but I think that they have some real belief that he's going to play at a high level to keep this team competitive. The Packers have an over-under for wins this year at 7.5. That would not put them in the postseason. So, you know, you're kind of looking at their win total. You're looking over at how how uh, Aaron Rodgers fares with the Jets. Uh, I think it's going to be a really compelling season in Green Bay, win or lose. But they've got a division there with the Bears at 7.5, the Vikings at 8.5, and, and the Lions at 9.5 that puts them with the lowest win total in the NFC North. It's going to be tough. Now, keep in mind, they only won eight games last year with Aaron Rodgers. Lowest win total since 2018. They had been a 13-wins team just about every season. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how they fare with Jordan Love, and I think there's going to be a whole bunch of rubbernecking because if if Aaron Rodgers blows up with the Jets, and that, like it or not, that's going to frame everything that the Packers do. Like if he has a great season and the Jets are in the playoffs, it's going to underscore what is going on in, in Green Bay. Likewise, if he struggles and the Jets don't make the playoffs, and there's a whole bunch of distractions around Aaron Rodgers, and he's not happy, I do think that it will uh, play as beneficial to the Packers. So it's not just the Packers controlling the narrative on their season. What happens with the Jets and Aaron Rodgers is going to absolutely frame what is going on in Green Bay. Well, it's the Russell Wilson situation all over again. Yes. You know, the Broncos struggled, and the Seahawks did well, and now we're all thinking, well, the Seahawks would absolutely crush that trade, which they did. And I, you know, I'm eyeing the Packers to win their division at 4-1. to one. I, I love that price. I think that's a good play. They're pretty talented everywhere else, and that division is soft. But, uh, John, I will say, you know, you talked about Steph Curry the whole one. I was at that golf tournament. Aaron Rodgers was there. Yeah. Rodgers is in good shape. He's a little skinny, but his legs are huge. He looked healthy. He looked happy. So, uh, I, you know, I think Rodgers may be in for a big year in New York. I love that golf tournament. I uh, I used to see it as a kid. I watched it growing up and spent time there at South Lake Tahoe and uh, that that golf course. And it uh, it's always a fun event. Uh, Yogi Roth and Bruce Feldman talking about Oregon State. The Beavers. They've got a lot of talent. They've got a beneficial schedule. Here is Yogi Roth and Bruce Feldman talking about Jonathan Smith. Punch it. They've got, I think, the best schedule in a really competitive league. They get Utah at home. They get some really critical games. They have games. a beast in the backfield. Behind, they have yeah. beast in the backfield. You could argue the deepest backfield in the league. right? Damian Martinez, I think, is the best back in the league. They have one of the most exciting players in Silas Bolden. I mean, he was... Uh... Like, I loved watching him at practice. Every time you think somebody's going to overthrow him, he's catching the back of the ball. And I was just like, wow, this is like, now he's not very big. We both probably outweigh him by 30 pounds, but he is super explosive and he's not the only weapon they got outside, right? But, um, you know, I think Jonathan Smith has a really good thing going there. Got a really good thing going. 
He's right about their schedule. As they talk about Oregon State's schedule, we're going to dive deep on the schedules with the schedule guy on Thursday, Andrew Percival, who breaks down every schedule in the Pac-12 conference. But, but you're right. Look, at Oregon State opens at San Jose State. They have UC Davis at home in that home opener at Racer Stadium. They have San Diego State at home on, uh, in week three. They go uh, to Washington State in week four. Uh, they get Utah at home in week five on a Friday night where, you know, they have been terrific at home. They go to Cal. If they can win the Utah game at home, it feels to me like you're looking at, like, a possible 6-0 and start for Oregon State. Then it gets harder. It's UCLA also at home, though. Then at Arizona, at Colorado, home versus Stanford. Is it possible that Oregon State could be 10-0, and 9-1? and Like, Utah and UCLA are not gimmies, but they're both at home. Then it's Washington, guess what, at home, and then at Oregon to finish the season. Yes, they have the back-to-back against the Huskies and the Ducks, but of the five teams that most people consider contenders, Oregon State's got the most favorable schedule in that they have Utah, Washington at home, UCLA at home. The only road game that they will play against another team that is viewed as a top-five team in the conference is at Oregon in the Civil War on Friday, November 24th. Look out. Could be a good season for Jonathan Smith. Is there a concern about the lack of height and size at the receiver position? Silas Bolden, 5'8", Anthony Gould, 5'8". They lost John Dunmore, who was poised to have a nice you know, impact. He's 6'2". They lost him. You know, no, no Luke Musgrave this year. Is the lack of height going to hurt DJ and that offense on that side of the ball? I, I'm not as concerned about that as I am the lack of defensive leadership or the loss of defensive leadership as we uh, as we sort of look at you know Oregon State last year versus our Oregon State this year, right? They lost Jaden Grant. They lost Jack Coletto. That's a lot of games. That's a lot of experience. That's a whole bunch of team captain uh, you know experience that is going out the door. And, and I think you know people who are concerned about Oregon State should be looking at the defensive side of the ball, not offense. Because on offense, what are they going to do? They're going to run the hell out of the ball. They're going to find the tight end. If they need to find a tall player, they'll find a tight end. Uh, I'd like to see bigger wide receivers choose Oregon State. But I liked what I saw in the spring game. They spread the ball around. They find creative ways to get the ball into the hands of of, uh, playmakers. And Anthony Gold, for his lack of size, can flat run. And, you know, he'll be there at media day on Friday. It'll be interesting to kind of see him but you know again a kid who grew up and played high school ball in the state of Oregon starring for Oregon State you know that's not unusual I I think the Oregon State's going to be fine the question for Oregon State will be you know that week five matchup against Utah they are the first that's the first crossover of top five teams in the Pac-12 but they get it at home and then it is the back-to-back late in the year Washington at home Oregon on the road in you know week 11 and week 12 those are Uh, Key pivot points for Jonathan Smith. Greg McElroy, he gave his top team in the Pac-12. Who does he like? Here's a hint. It's not USC. Greg McElroy picking Washington. Punch it. My number one overall team in the Pac-12, the Washington Huskies. Is there a more underrated coach in America than Kalen DeBoer? Probably not. Guy's 90-11. In his head coaching career, I would say that's pretty dang good. Coming off an 11-win season last year and... You got to think, man, last year was a breakthrough, okay? And we know that no one's, you know, I mean, Washington's not sneaking up on anybody this year, man. Like, we know very, very well what Michael Penix is capable of. I mean, you got weapons all over the place. And 
I got to think, Michael Penix kind of thrust into the spotlight last year, had an amazing year. But that was the first year of a transfer situation. I mean, even Joe Burrow, first year of his transfer situation, struggled in his redshirt junior year at LSU before he had a massive breakout, maybe the best season we've ever seen in 2019. So there is a little bit of a gap there for you to kind of get on the same page with the other personnel that you are going to be playing with. Look, as you look at Washington, the question for me is going to be the question I had at the end of last season. It's pretty simple. For Washington as a team, look, uh, you went from a four-win season to an 11-win season in, in year one as a staff. Are they, are they going to be able to take another step forward? And will it be a more difficult step? Staying at 11 wins, trying to get to 12 wins. Get, keep in mind, last year, this was an offense that was learning new system, new lingo, new practice habits, adjusting to new coaches. The offense, again, expects to be pretty prolific. But the defense was just okay last year. Kind of like Oregon. Can they, can they take a step forward on defense? What are they expecting out of the defense? And for Michael Penix Jr., it has been an absolute dream for him. It could not have gone better for him. He leaves Indiana, where he has this reputation of being a great player who's injury-prone, goes to Washington, has been lights out. Okay, he stayed healthy, great season. Can he keep that going? And Can they find a little run game to complement what he's doing? A lot of questions for Penix Jr. and Kalen DeBoer. But uh, tougher schedule, too. Greg McElroy picking Washington. I won't go there. I like Oregon's schedule better. I like Oregon State's schedule better. I like the fact that Utah has been there and won it twice in a row. And I love that USC's got Caleb Williams. And so when you talk about the five contenders, again, I might I might sleep a little on the Huskies. And maybe maybe they'll make me pay for it. But I can't pick them to win this thing. McElroy talks about maybe even another jump from Michael Penix Jr., which is hard to imagine because how good he was last yes. season. But do you think that we could look back at the end of the year and Michael Penix Jr. is the best quarterback in the conference? He could be the number one pick in the NFL draft. I wouldn't be shocked by that. But I also wouldn't be shocked if, you know, I'm knocking on wood. I don't wish this on him. I wouldn't be shocked if, you know, he, he didn't stay healthy because, you know, it was a real surprise, I thought, a year ago. The fact that he stayed so healthy and Washington was so good. And by the way, they were pretty damn good despite the fact that they didn't have a defense and they and they didn't really run the ball. And so, you know, at the end of the year, I thought Washington was playing the best football in the conference and probably should have been there to play against uh, uh, Utah in the, in the championship game or play against USC. But they didn't get there. And Utah walked off back-to-back championships. T- tough game week three at Michigan State. You're expected to win on the road in East Lansing. I don't know. That's a tough spot, but I think I think you're right. There, there's a lot of room that Washington could be really good this year, but it, to say that they're going to be the best team in the Pac-12, I think is a little premature. Coming up, we'll talk Chip Kelly. Anna will pop into the studio. We got the 5 at 5 coming up top of the hour again. Pac-12 Media Day Friday in Vegas. This show will be live 3 to 6 p.m. with all the big guests, including Michael Penix Jr., Kalen DeBoer, Dan Lanning, Jonathan Smith, Caleb Williams, Lincoln Riley. Oh, it's going to be a rich three hours on Friday. Leave it here. Anna's in the studio. How you doing? Don't do it. (laughs) There's a mouse in the house. You did it. Uh, She's in the studio. How you doing? What have you been doing? I knew your. I know your pregnant pause. Yeah, I know what it means. You know me too well. I know. I need to mix it up. 
Your dog was at it again today. Why is it only my dog when it misbehaves? This puppy that you brought home is a problem for me. Again today. She's just pruning. She's pruning. First of all, this puppy chews on sprinkler heads. (laughs) I don't know if you have this problem in your household. And yes, I've tried putting things that are distasteful on the sprinkler head. She's mostly stopped chewing the sprinkler heads and the drip system. She has moved on to foliage. (laughs) So um, there are some plants in our yard that I've grown from bulbs. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful, beautiful plants. Bulbs. From bulbs. And uh, this dog, (laughs) for whatever reason, just chops them in half. And leaves them for me on the middle of the lawn. I know. We need to get her more exercise, this, really. That's what yeah. it is. You know what she did? when I? Because I, I just poked my head into the backyard. Yeah. And uh, the first thing I saw was this giant flower thing that had been chopped in half, mm-hmm. and it was laying there. Our eyes met. The dog put her head down and ran away. She knew. She knew. Dogs know. She knows this is not good. Yeah. So why does she do Why does your dog do this? My dog, huh? Yeah. Why do puppies do that anyway? Well, what, what is the what's the logic there? Do we have a puppy expert in particular? To the show? I I mean I don't need to be an expert. I just know that she is a herder and she needs a job to do. <laughs> so herding if, flowers. So if she doesn't get out and exercise and get run, then uh, she gets a little destructive. Why can't she just go around getting the weeds or go around <laughs> picking up after herself? You know, like hey, grab a shovel. Pitch in a little bit. You need a job? All right, there's the job. Uh, speaking of jobs, Chip Kelly talking okay. about college kids. I want to play this clip for you. Okay. Okay. I've been waiting for you to come on the show to play this clip. Really? Me? Yep, yep. Me? Because yep. you know a little Chip Kelly. Okay. Okay. You've been in news conferences. You covered him a little bit. You were on the yeah. TV news side when they were in the national championship game. You Going to the news conferences, interviewing the coach. You were like the TV lady who yeah. got to come in and play sports reporter for I know. a week. And no, but, he's a um, tough cookie. But here's the deal. He's he's always thinking, and I can tell you, without knowing what he's going to say to this question, he will always answer in the way that is most beneficial to himself. Okay. Okay? I don't think he's really going to be honest, but he's going to be beneficial. Mm-hmm. Okay? So he's asked by Joel Klatt, about name image likeness. NIL. What is going on? It's off the rails. SEC coming out today saying that they need congressional intervention and Congress is the only entity that can solve name image likeness. Okay? SEC saying yeah. that? Yes, they're getting serious. Okay, but they're the ones with athletes that are getting huge deals. What yeah. are they complaining well, about? Well, everybody's catching up. Oh. Okay. Okay. This is like That's why. when like when Alabama was dominating the college football world, Nick Saban saw Oregon playing fast and went, that's not healthy. (laughs) (laughs) Never mind knocking people's blocks off. That was healthy when you line up and you smash somebody five yards down the field every play. He was selectively found a problem. If you play too fast, that's an equalizer. (laughs) And now Nick Saban's going, well, wait a minute, that's dangerous. Got it. Okay. Okay. Never mind what we're doing. Not really that SEC has a problem. It's just that it's got some competition in that Not as dangerous when we are pile-driving people, but dangerous when people are lining up very fast Mm -hmm. and running plays. Okay. But here's Chip Kelly, Okay. Listen to what he says, because I think there's it, it doesn't surprise me. But there's a little bit of genius in it, because I think Chip Kelly's recruiting here. 
So Joel Klatt asking him about NIL. I think we let 18-year-old kids make decisions in so many other aspects of their life, but for some reason in college football, we say they can't. Mm. I mean, you played baseball, yeah. so you made the decision that I'm going to go play professional baseball. Like, you, you're a professional at 18 years old. And no one has an issue with that. But they have a huge issue with it in football, which I just don't understand that. We don't have an issue with it in the military. Right. You know, I've been fortunate in my career to take a couple trips overseas and visit our troops, and I'm watching 18-year-old kids on the deck of the USS Eisenhower in 137-degree weather landing planes million dollar equipment that we've entrusted to an 18 year old but we don't think a kid should get nli money because he has to pay taxes like people argue that we well, can't give those kids a lot of money you know they have to pay taxes on it like do you know there are 18 year old kids across this country that pay taxes all the time baseball players had to do it no That's one right. ever said baseball i can't believe they're drafting kids in baseball at 18 but in football for some reason we've kind of wrapped our arms around it i think what we have to teach these kids though with with freedom and freedom of choices has to come discipline. Mm. You know, you have to be a pretty disciplined individual when you get a lot of freedom on your side because you just can't run around and say, hey, I got a ton of money, I'm gonna blow it on this, I'm gonna blow it on this. Well, it's just not, it's not gonna last very long. Yeah. And that's a very tough lesson for some kids to learn. But Chip Kelly, talking name, image, likeness. It's N-I-L, he said N-L-I, National Letter of Intent. Yeah, Coaches yeah. will slip that way, but I know what he meant. Yeah. Um, all right, what do you hear there? Uh, what I hear is somebody who always sounds pretty confident in what he's saying and so the more he talks the more i'm like yeah he's right like <laughs> it's just kind of the way chip kelly is the as he speaks i'm like yeah i totally agree with him yeah he's he but makes isn't total the sense. problem and i get a chance to talk with him on friday okay yeah. on this show but isn't the problem with what he's saying that nobody's saying kids shouldn't make money what we're saying is hey it's the wild west out there there's no regulation on this you're essentially buying players. That's not in the spirit of college athletics. But I get from his standpoint, what he wants recruits to hear is that Chip Kelly's not against them earning money. Mm -hmm. Because coaches, it would be suicide for any major college football coach to come out and say, I don't think players should earn money. Because that's going to be used against him big time. More than his offense, defense, the fact that he's playing fast, the fact that he's probably going to start a freshman quarterback in Dante Moore, maybe. Uh, you know, that will be used against him. Doesn't he also have the luxury, though, of being the head coach of UCLA, where I assume it's not hard to recruit kids because just the luster of the brand makes and it. And they've got money. they got NIL money. Well, yeah. yeah so they've time. got, I'm sure, have a very successful collective based out of Los Angeles that are helping kids line up fantastic deals. So that's spoken purely from a chip kelly perspective yes and he's always recruiting and he, I'm, I'm telling you he's always thinking what's the best possible answer for me not what i don't I, sometimes i don't think he tells you what he really thinks because mm -hmm. i think down deep there's probably part of chip kelly that goes hey yeah this thing's off the rails we should get some regulation on it and when there is regulation, you watch all these coaches that have come out and say, I don't have a problem with it. I don't have a problem with it. They're going to come out and go, well, we, we, uh, we needed it. We needed it done the right way, right? Mm -hmm. You can't say that, though, when you're trying to uh, recruit. only guy who can say that is Nick Saban. I don't know how it works. I don't, I don't know how you sustain a model like that. Now, I know that we're going to lose recruits because somebody else is going to be willing to pay them more. Um, 
But name, image, and likeness is something that's here. And I think the more supporters that we have for the University of Alabama in all sports right, that are willing to sponsor players, whatever you want to call it, use them in your business to help your business, that's going to help our programs. Um, the thing that I fear is at some point in time, they're just going to say we're going to have to pay players. If we start paying players, we're going to have to eliminate sports. Right, and this is... This is all bad for college sports. I mean, we probably have, what, 450 people on scholarship at Alabama, whether they're women's tennis players, women's softball players, golfers, you know, baseball players, non-revenue sports that, should, that have for years and years and years been able to create a better life for themselves because they've been able to get scholarships and participate in college athletics. That's what college athletics is supposed to be. Says Nick Saban, making $9 million a year himself. Right. But ideologically, so they're they're kind of on two ends of the spectrum there. Yes. And, I mean, I, I applaud, I guess, Nick Saban, who's willing to go on record and say what he thinks. Um, but isn't so, he so speaking, who's right? But who's it, right? But isn't Nick Saban speaking from a standpoint of, hey, this old system that we've dominated worked great for us. <laughs> Now that we're going to lose some players to people who are willing to pay more, I've got a problem with this. Right. Because I think if Nick Saban is coaching at, you know, some middle-of-the-road SEC program that has a strong collective and sees the opportunity to elevate his program, he's probably not singing the same tune. Mm-hmm. You know? So both coaches, who are very human, yeah. are just speaking from their own points of view. Yes. But... And- but Chip Kelly, I think, gets the win here because he is shrewd, knowing that recruits are studying, you know, everything that these coaches say. Yeah, 100% they are. And and the other thing that's getting said is some people are coming out and saying, look, I'm all for NIL, but it's got to be done the right way. Okay? Rick George, Colorado AD, is one of them. Name, image, and likeness done right is really good for our student-athletes, and I wholeheartedly support name, image, and likeness. I don't like the other things that are going on, uh, different payments at, at dollar levels that just make no sense. All right, talking about buying players. But Colorado has got a powerful collective. Mm-hmm. They're kind of doing it better than others in some cases. I, I don't actually even understand what he means by the right way and the wrong way. Well, I think he's saying if it's a true endorsement deal, uh-huh. if – it's about retaining your own student athlete. It's about rewarding somebody who's already coming to your school, not just buying a player and having them transfer in because hey, we're giving you, uh, you know, seven figures. Okay. You know, but okay. but meanwhile, here's Coach Prime. He's gonna eat those words if you're yeah. saying that Colorado has a strong collective. Yeah, but he's saying I'm not against it. It's but I'm for it done the right way. Now here's Coach Prime. Here's his football coach. Okay. Here's Coach Prime. Okay. When you talk about name, image, and likeness, I haven't seen anybody on anything. We keep talking about these kids are making millions of dollars. What are they on? Where is the name, the image, and the likeness, or is it just collectives just paying these kids to participate in this or that college? We don't have that. Again, we, we don't have those resources. Uh, we can't compete with that. So the little guy is pushed aside because now when it comes down to is this guy going to choose this college or that college, we can't compete with anting up to make sure that kid is compensated like he wants to be compensated. And I want these kids to start by focusing on the NFL and not the NIL. Mm -hmm. Now you have kids 
not even thinking about um, the wonderful job that Coach Saban has done and the track record that he's accumulated, but you're in or the position coach or does his scheme fit him? They're thinking about NIL. So if the money fits, uh, I go there. And that's not the way to attack this thing because the NFL is what's going to sustain you and maintain you, not the NIL. So he knows his angle Yeah, is I've played in the NFL. I'm in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. I can sell, hey, I've been to the promised land. I know the way there. He's like That's club, what's important. He's like a club coach, yeah, basically. Saying, this is what's important, not club, the money. Come follow me. I'll yeah. lead you there. The money's not important. You know, which, it shouldn't be. Which for him is a shrewd tactic yeah. as well because he's right. You know, Colorado isn't going to be able to put together the kind of deals that, like, a UCLA can. They're collective anyway. Yeah. Meanwhile, here's another one. How about Scott Barnes, Athletic Director of Oregon State, on this show, talking about NIL? I think it invites more, and I say that because of the NSA's lack of leadership in governing this. Um, I'd have a different answer for you if we had some controls. We don't. And so it, it, it does invite, uh, I believe, more cheating. Now, if, if we had some uh, congressional intervention, the NSA stepped up in, in a way that, that made sense to help uh, govern, um, I, I would have a different answer for you. But as it sits now, uh, that's, that's sort of how I do this. I'm with Barnes because he's saying there's no guardrails here. The NCAA is ill-equipped to handle all this. And it is. Yeah, and we think Congress can make it better. Because the states themselves, <laughs> the states themselves, Anna, yeah. there, there's, there's no case, no state to this point has had to defend its laws against a lawsuit attacking its NIL position. Mm -hmm. The NCAA doesn't have real oversight. So you have the NCAA has no power. The states themselves are ineffective. Like there's nothing going, you know, state to state it differs. It's, you need it to be an umbrella that is federal. You have to. And there, and it's why college administrators for months, mm -hmm. they've been hinting about it. They're sure. now coming out and actually saying it. Mm -hmm. They're saying we need the help. We need the help. Okay, but we need capital. Let me help. play devil's advocate, though. Yeah. What's wrong with letting it work itself out and just because we live in a capitalist society, and you think the, the market, the market will, will dictate, you know, what happens with nil? What ha it, it it will? The market usually figures it out. I wonder. It'll be a bumpy road. Yeah. There's going to be ugly stuff along the way. Here's Jim Beheim, longtime college basketball coach. He's criticizing Wake Forest, Pitt, and Miami, and he's accusing them of buying players. Well, I think it's the portal and the and the NIL have had huge impacts. You're able to uh, uh, get players right away through the transfer portal. I think all the NILs that I know of, what I know of, are legal and within the rules completely, 100. percent And it's uh, you know the way college basketball is going. Uh, I was just talking about that as I was walking from my press conference after the press conference to my locker room. And, uh, you know, that was, you know, it's uh, changed college basketball. You can turn around a team uh, overnight or you can retain players. And all that is part of the landscape of college basketball. There it is. Remind me, this all is happening because the federal government in some capacity said players can do this. They have the right to go out. Individual and earn states. Money. Individual states ruled that players 
can do this. And so the individual state laws from state to state vary. It causes some problems okay. because in some states they came out initially and said the colleges cannot be involved. Mm -hmm. Then other states said, hey, we want our schools to have an advantage. The colleges absolutely can be involved. Okay. They can, you can, in-house. And then Oregon was one of those that said the colleges can't be involved and then later went back and told Oregon and Oregon State, it's okay. Other states are doing it. <laughs> okay. So I think what they're looking for, what Greg Sankey's looking for, is help. I don't think there's anyone right now who says we stop or we fully, we, we pull fully back to where we were. Mm -hmm. But in essence, we have to think about the protections for young people so that they're not signing for what seems like a lot of money at 18 years old, and all of a sudden they're a first round draft pick at 23 and they realize there's an entanglement and now they're in a court case uh, without the type of cleanliness around these deals that, that would be much more optimal. Yep. We have to adjust this system. Yeah. And we need help to do it, to do it properly. <laughs> I don't think realistically that he's really worried about 18-year-old kids and the problems they'll have at 23. He brings up a good point, though. Yeah, but I think that's a good point that helps college, major college, Power Five conferences achieve their goal, which is they want Capitol Hill involved. Brett Yormark, the Big 12 commissioner, talking about uh, NIO. Obviously, it's an issue that we're all addressing. Um, I'm working very closely with my A5 colleagues and Charlie Baker. I have spent time on Capitol Hill. Um, we would like federal legislation uh, to create some uniformity to NIL. Uh, there's 32 states, and in many cases, very different interpretations. For, so federal preemption of state law is certainly something that's high on the list. And there are other components as well that go along with it. But we are addressing it uh, as an industry and uh, and in partnership with many of the conferences and the NCA. These conferences don't like each other, but they uh, they're in lockstep on one thing. They they want NIL under control. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Anna is gearing up for her five at five that uh, will happen at five o'clock. Uh, what? <laughs> what? Kind of implied. The five at five. Yeah. Well, well sometimes the five at five happens at like five twelve. <laughs> sometimes it happens at five twenty two. If we're not, you know, on it, we're not. Uh, we haven't figured that out. Uh, camp exceptional. The summer camp uh, for typical kids and special needs kids will be taking place next week. We're just a week away from camp exceptional. If you are somebody who would like to make a tax deductible donation to support the camp. Um, you know, a lot of uh, generous business owners and uh, individuals with big hearts have come forth to help out in that way over the years. If you would like to sponsor a kid that uh, wouldn't otherwise be able to attend the camp, you can go to baldfacedtruth.org to make a tax-deductible donation to the 501c3 nonprofit organization. That's baldfacedtruth.org. Anna, uh, Camp Exceptional is always a big week in our household and uh, a lot of family come and volunteer steven's kids are going to be participating in camp exceptional oh i can't wait are they excited at all steven did you get any kind of updates today uh yeah i uh, i got a text message i got an email about it i told my Good. wife uh yeah so we're ready to go the kids are excited they uh... do they know what to expect um, I think the oldest one does. He's done a couple like sports camps before, but the the youngest one no he'll be uh, it'll be a surprise for him but he's gonna have a lot of fun he's he's very entertaining Sunscreen, hydration. 
<laughs> These kids will be What's working the, hard. I haven't even looked at the weather. After last week, I was kind of worried. Like, it's not bad. It's I don't not? think it's going to be in the 90s. Yeah. It's not going to be a scorcher. I always watch, too, because I'm like, oh, that makes a big difference, you pa- know? Yeah, Pac-12 Media Day Friday in Vegas. Yeah. 115-degree forecast. Yee. That's the high Friday, 115. Ouch. Face of the sun. Yeah. They've moved Media Day from L.A. to the face of the sun, essentially, <laughs> um, for that. But uh, weather next week uh, showing... Uh, Showing okay in the 80s, yeah, 84, 86, 89 maybe, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. It won't be too bad. But uh, what else should uh, he, his uh, kids expect? If you're uh, going to give a scouting report on Camp Exceptional. Yeah, bring a towel on one of the days because the good folks Thursday. at Clackamas Fire uh, come out and spray down the kids at the end of camp. It's like a tradition, a big 10 highlight. years running. You know this is our 10th camp? Yes. 10. I do. Been doing this a decade. Do you know? How did that happen? Do you know? I'll tell you how it happened. We were sitting on a bench at a park, <laughs> and we were talking about the BFT Foundation to my brother, who is an adaptive PE specialist in California. He and I were sitting there. It was a quiet moment. It was one of those quiet conversations where nothing's really happening. Kids were playing in the park. Mm-hmm. His kids, our kids playing. Okay? Play structure. And he said he was running this this uh, event in Central California where he was utilizing athletes at Fresno State who were in the athletic department who were runners and football players and baseball players. And he said he was pairing them because he was in charge of the uh, Fresno County special ed uh, program. Mm-hmm. He was pairing the college athletes with an individual special needs kid. And they would set a goal. And maybe the kid was um, immobile. Maybe the kid was in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. They would come up with something like, "Hey, I want to throw a softball, and I, you know, here's what my all-time best is, and I want to throw it ten feet farther than that." Yeah. And so then the athlete that they were paired with might be a softball player at Fresno State would really work with them on body mechanics and getting in shape and lifting weights, and yeah. and then at the end of the thing, um, they would uh, they had what they called the exceptional games. And then the athletes would come together with the individual, you know, the two athletes would get out and say, okay, this kid's goal was to throw a softball 35 feet. And the kid would throw the softball like 50 feet, okay? <laughs> and and then others, it was running. You know, there yeah. were kids who were running, and they were paired with track and field athletes. And I said, that would be really cool. Could you turn that into a summer camp? <laughs> and he was like, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> Next year, it became a summer camp. And so now... It will feature baseball and football. They're going to play football this year one day in the camp. Yeah. and Angle you know, ball, whatever angle that ball. is. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a relationship camp. Portland State football players come out and volunteer. University of Portland men's and women's basketball players come out. Portland State men's and women's basketball players. Athletes at Clackamas Community, Community College come out and volunteer. They're all serving as team leaders, and I'll tell you what, they end up in tears at the end of the week because they love those kids. It's a lot of fun. It's the highlight of our summer. Look forward to that. All right, baldfacetruth.org if you want to support it. The 5 at 5 is coming up. Anna's ready. It will not include Steph Curry, the 5 at 5. Do you agree or disagree? Leave it here. Well, we're in the happy hour, hour number three. We are also just days away from Pac-12 Media Day. We'll be live on Friday, 3 to 6 p.m., And you'll hear all of the biggest guests in the Pac-12. Coach Prime will make his debut on this show. Deion Sanders is scheduled for an interview on this show. So is Caleb Williams. So is Dan Lanning. Jonathan Smith. Bo Nix. Lincoln Riley. Chip Kelly. Everybody in one place on this show, including... 
Pac-12 Commissioner George Klyovkov. I got the list. Pac-12 sent me over the list of interviews that we will be doing on the show. I'll have them one-on-one. When I looked at the original schedule, I almost fell out of my chair. Because, Anna, you saw it. It, like, I'm going to have to have an IV. (laughs) Listen to the, the lineup. Caleb Williams, USC quarterback. Jaden Delora, Arizona quarterback. Surprised they're bringing Delora. Kyle Whittingham, Utah head coach. Jonathan Smith at Oregon State. Anthony Gold at Oregon State. Uh, Keaton Aladapo at Oregon State. Jed Fish, Arizona's head coach. Ron Stone Jr., Washington State edge rusher. Cam Rising, Utah quarterback. Cameron Ward, Washington State quarterback. Troy Taylor, Stanford head coach. USC coach Lincoln Riley. Washington State coach Jake Dickert. I'm not even at lunch yet, okay? Like, then it comes Justin Wilcox at Cal, Kenny Dellingham, Arizona State, Chip Kelly, UCLA, uh, Shador Sanders, Colorado's quarterback, Jackson Sermon, the linebacker at Cal, Colorado's two-way wonder, Travis Hunter, will join us, cornerback, wide receiver, Bo Nix on the show, Michael Penix Jr., Kalen DeBoer, George Klyovkov, Coach Prime, Literally says Coach Prime. <laughs> says Colorado head coach Dion, Coach Prime, Sanders. And then Oregon head coach Dan Lanning. And then I will fall over, exhausted. <laughs> Those are all the people I will interview one-on-one. Jeez. That's it? I mean, come on, John. Yeah. Get more people on the show. I had to strike some. Mm-hmm. They gave me more. I, I had seven players from schools not in the state of Oregon that I had to tell the Pac-12. I said, I can't do... Everybody, because they gave me seven more players on top of that. You know? Apologies to Stanford linebacker Tristan Sinclair. Apologies to (laughs) Utah safety Cole Bishop. Nothing personal to Duke Clemens, the UCLA offensive lineman, and Matthew Sindrick at Cal offensive lineman. And uh, I just, I can't do it. I can't do it all. What do you get out of those interviews with the coaches? It's a face-to-face meeting. Yes. It's one-on-one versus the other. See, the advantage I have, I am the only media member that covers the Pac-12 that hosts a radio show and also writes. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so I will be in the main news conference setting for George Klyovkov in the morning. First thing in the morning, he goes first. He'll announce. I believe he will give an update to the Pac-12 media rights. I expect an update on Friday. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's going to announce a deal, but I think he's going to say, here's the update, and he's going to outline it. Right. Okay? And then there'll be a little bit of skirmish, a little news, everybody posting what they think. Mm -hmm. And then it will be, hey, we're going to do these group interviews, Chip Kelly and 30 reporters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you kind of just stand there and you interview them together. Yeah. That's in the writing area. But I'll go up the escalator at Resorts World to the third floor. It's Radio Row. Mm-hmm. And they will bring over the interviews of the athletes and coaches that I mentioned, mm-hmm. one by one, 11 to 15 minutes each. What do I get out of it? It's a face-to-face. For some coaches, like Chip Kelly, I see him every year. Right. There's some familiarity. For others, like Coach Prime, this is a chance for me to put you know a face to him and ask him questions one-on-one. Mm-hmm. It's an interview that I've, I've been after. Right. So I'm happy to have that interview. And Shadur Sanders, his kid, I want to talk to him. So we're going to have those conversations and gets to know you. But last year off air was really interesting because before the coaches start their interview, a lot of them were turning to me and going, hey, 
what's going on with our conference? Are we going to have a conference? <laughs> that Literally, like four or five coaches said, hey, I follow you. I read you. What's going to happen? That's crazy. Are we going to have a conference? I remember you saying yeah, that. Yeah, but it's some rapport building. Yeah. You know, and for players like Ron Stone, the edge rusher at Washington State, I, I uh, sat down with him at halftime of the Pac-12 championship game last November. Mm-hmm. He was in the press box. Washington State had brought him because he wants to be a broadcaster mm-hmm. after his career. So the uh, Pac-12 media person came over to me and tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, we have Ron Stone here. N- nobody's wanting to talk to him. We held a news conference and nobody showed up. Uh-huh. Would you mind just sitting with him for a couple minutes and talking with him? And you know, and so at halftime of Utah USC, I sat with Ron Stone and we talked. I have a feeling when Ron Stone comes on that my halftime talk in December will pay dividends. Sure. Because he'll there's a level of familiarity where he'd be like, "You're the only guy that showed up to talk to me <laughs> in December when I came to Las Vegas <laughs> as part of a job shadow." So. I, I want to, you know, I just want to get some insight. Like, what are these players thinking? What are they talking about, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, you know, we were in L.A. a year ago, and I asked Chip Kelly, who would play you in the movie? You know, and who would, you know, Dan Lanning, who plays you in the movie? And it sparked this great conversation about movies. Vegas is going to be different, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask him, like, maybe what should stay here in Vegas? What in your ecosystem would you love to leave in Vegas? Like, everybody says it stays in Vegas. Mm-hmm. What would you do that? I also want to know what they're all reading. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about coaches. What are they reading? Yeah. Jonathan Smith gave this book recommendation to Mitch Canham, the Oregon State baseball coach. And I wrote about it at johnconzano.com earlier this week or last week, late last week. If, so if you're interested, you can read about it. But, you know, he gave him a book recommendation. It was on leadership. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, I asked Mario Cristobal one time. I texted him and I said, what are you reading? Mm-hmm. And he started sending me pictures of books. <laughs> they weren't picture books. It yeah. wasn't like. Dr. Seuss. No. But he started sending me like, you know, he, he was reading Joe Torrey's book on managing and he, he was reading a Navy SEAL book on, you know, what it's like to be a Navy SEAL. And he was, it was all these kind of like it's very Mario Cristobal. The successful ha- tra- habits of <laughs> Mario Cristobal's ecosystem books. <laughs> and I'm curious about that. Like, what is Kyle Whittingham reading? Mm-hmm. What is he reading? What's on his nightstand? What's on Jake Dickert's nightstand? And it's always interesting to me because. You will encounter a coach that's not a reader now and then. Sure. And they look at you, and there is a horrified look on their face because they know they don't have an answer. And they go, (laughs) and they're reaching in their mind for some book that was recommended to them, or maybe they read Once Upon a Time, you know. Like, I've seen coaches have that look. And then conversely, like Andy Ludwig, the Utah offensive coordinator, I asked him one time, what are you reading? He's a history major, and he's a history buff. Mm -hmm. And he lit up, and he was just like, you know, (laughs) He's like kind of a robot, Ludwig. He has a hard time, I think, relating and being conversational mm-hmm. sometimes. But when you ask him about history and what he's reading, you're suddenly in his space. Yeah. And so there's some rapport building that goes on in these interviews. And it pays off the rest of the it year. It does pay off because yeah. it's, you know, it's like Jake Dickert, you know, he's trying to hire two coordinators. He At the end of last season, he's having a hard time. I know him a little because I've been face-to-face with him in these one-on-ones. Mm-hmm. And we've talked, and it's conversational. He's been on the show. And so when I'm reaching out to him to ask him about the coordinator hires or whatever, it's not the first time we've ever talked. Yeah. That's the key. key. Yeah. That's the key. Yeah. I don't know. Caleb Williams last year, he showed up. He had on some designer jacket and a Rolex and just kind of chapped me a little bit. I looked at him, and I was like, who's this guy think he is? I'm going to ask him about his fingernails. (laughs) You know, why did he paint 
his fingernails and something offensive on his fingernails for the championship game. Oh, I forgot about that. Remember that? Yeah. He still got my Heisman vote. Uh-huh. I'm going to tell him that. Yeah. You got my Heisman vote, but I didn't like that. <laughs> it made me It made me reconsider. Mm. I had to overcome that barrier to give him the vote. Why did he do that? Did he regret it? Well, I'm going to ask him that. Is that okay? Good stuff. All right, yeah. let's do the five at 5.08. Anna, let's go. The five at 5.08. Anna's got her number one story. What is it? I can't believe this happens, and yet I can believe this happens. An oblivious fan seemingly trying to take a selfie causes a massive crash at the Tour de France. They were extending their arm and their phone out, and they made contact with a competitor, an American rider, Sepp Kuss, sent him careening to the ground. This happened in about 30 miles into the 15th stage. There are a total of 21 stages. And this wiped out like 15-plus riders. It's just, you know how that goes. When one goes down, a whole bunch of them go behind them. Down goes the peloton. And uh, I I just, you know, the, the riders... Thankfully, we're not seriously hurt, just bumps and bruises. But he said there was a spectator leaning into the road. You know, it's the it's a problem in the bike race world. A lot of people just don't know exactly what's going on. He said, unfortunately, somebody wanted to get a selfie. I didn't really see it coming. Did you see? Uh, I don't know what stage. Did you mention what stage it is now? But, no, no. Okay. So this is the third fan-induced incident okay the first was a fan who had do you know what a tribute pole is no okay so tour de france like obviously it's you know some of this event goes through the countryside yeah uh, in france but um i believe it was sunday there was a fan who had a pole that they were waving that had a bunch of jerseys on it that were um their favorite racers jerseys well unfortunately the pole jersey came down and got caught oh, in the spikes no. of the boat bike <laughs> no. and the rider went head over heels Jeez. and it was a really bad scene and it was a nice tribute but <laughs> but here you know it was kind of a um, a reminder that as a spectator you should not be part of the race this was stage nine that this happened this initial thing you got to give these these like the race is dangerous enough. Yeah. But if you watch the video of it, the peloton's cruising along. They're like 45 minutes into the ride. You're going to see on the left side of the screen that this fan has got this pole with a bunch of jerseys hanging on it, and he's trying to be like he's trying to be a good fan. Yeah. And be like, hey, tribute my favorite riders. And instead, look at <gasps> it crashes down. Uh, oh It takes no. out a bike. Guy crashes, it ruins, <laughs> and, and the worst Jeez. part is that the the jerseys get caught in the bike. Yeah, it's not just the fall. No, it took it's the fan. Tangled. It took the fan like the peloton was gone, and oh, no. <laughs> and the riders throwing the jerseys. I don't the blame the riders for being frustrated. They they need. To, I mean, it feels like they need to issue some rules here. There's got to be like a two foot rule. You know, get step off back. the track. Step back. You can't dangle stuff over the track. Get it away. Just, You're not part of the event. Can't. That's just not common sense. And it, it's a great event, though, Tour de France. It really it's a great is. Great event. Yes. I'd love to go see it sometime in person. Okay. All right. Let's, let's go. Do it. Number two story. 
Uh, a criminal trial began today, and the person being charged is San Jose State University's longtime sports medicine director. Um, this person, Scott Shaw, is a trainer. He's accused of sexually abusing more than two dozen female athletes. So this is the Spartans' head athletic trainer from 2008 to 2020. He's facing all these charges um, for groping that he allegedly conducted during physical therapy treatments over a three-year time period. Uh, as many as 13 former Spartan athletes may testify, and that includes four victims and nine others for whom the statute of limitations has already expired, and they're all saying that Shaw sexually assaulted them. It's really uh, got some echoes of the Larry Nasser trial at Michigan State. Um, it's interesting. They're calling as witnesses. Uh, they are calling uh, some male athletes because they want to be able to demonstrate how differently he treated women versus men when he was examining them. 17 members of San Jose State's swimming and diving team told their coach that he touched them inappropriately. Shaw touched them inappropriately. Um, he, HR investigation by the school cleared him of wrongdoing. But it's going to be really interesting to see how this goes. And uh, San Jose State allowed him to continue to work while the investigation was underway. By the way, USA Today's Kenny Jacoby has the best account of this. For people who don't know, Kenny Jacoby is a former University of Oregon journalist. He worked at the student newspaper, the Daily Emerald, the University of Oregon. Fantastic investigative reporter working at USA Today now. And he's, he did a great job on this story. Number three story, as you see it. Uh, ESPN reporter Jeff Passan says he broke his back because a tree limb fell on him. What? Passan <laughs> broke his back? Yes. This is ESPN's baseball reporter. He says yeah, that his Passan. lack of activity on Twitter is because he has a broken back. Uh, a tree limb fell on him while he was doing a cleanup after a big storm in Kansas City. He still has use of his arms, legs, and his Twitter fingers. Oh, no. But he does have a broken back, and he will be recovering from that. This limb that fell on him is not small. He tweeted it. and I saw it. Yeah, he will heal, but he's hoping that that pain will uh, subside between now and the August 1st. I love his tweet. Deadline. He said, breaking my back, <laughs> like he was announcing breaking news. Um, wow. He, uh, he lives in Kansas City, and Passon uh, formerly worked at the Fresno Bee. I know him from there. We crossed paths there and got a lot of respect for his writing. And heal well, Jeff Passon. I hope you're okay. I'm glad it is just his back. Can I say that? Yeah, sure. All right. Number four. Four. Uh, former 49ers quarterbacks. You have my attention. Steve Young and John Pay uh, are signing up. To coach football, they will be coaching a girls' flag football team. I love it. This is in the Bay Area. Menlo. Menlo School. of Is it Atherton? Atherton? Yeah, Atherton. That's, um, a, that's an affluent uh, suburban oh, is it? San Francisco Palo Alto address. I see. Yes. Well, apparently, uh, girls' flag football has just taken the state by storm. And it's getting really popular around here as well. The uh, California Interscholastic Federation 
sanctioned girls flag football as an official sport by a 146 to zero vote in February, and it's to start this this season. You know what's really cool is the idea that two former NFL players are both interested in helping young people and coaching. Like you know, there are a lot, there is stuff like this that goes on, and like you know, you got Anthony Newman coaching at Central Catholic. You have Alex Molden coaching at Westland High School. You've got Neil Lomax coaching. He's now, uh, you know, out in uh, in Newburgh and helping out and you know doing a lot of different things. And he's worked with high school kids over the years. I love when I see this. And John Pay, by the way, he was a quarterback at Stanford and with the 49ers. He's the girls' basketball coach at Menlo School. And Steve Young's daughter, who is a senior, letters in track and field, letters in, in basketball, is now going to play flag football. <laughs> this is I go watch this team play. I know. I'll sit around in Menlo, in Atherton. I want our kids to play flag football. There you go. I do. Number five story as you see it. And we finish out with uh, Russell Okung. Uh, formerly of the NFL, he just revealed that he lost more than 50 pounds after going 40 days without food for a second time. What? <laughs> this is by choice. I don't know how healthy this is. Yeah, yeah. He weighed more than 300 pounds when he was playing with the Seahawks, the Broncos, the Chargers, and the Panthers. He went on his first fast earlier this year, where he lost more than 100 pounds. That's incredible. Yeah. You know, I think when you when you look at like a guy like Okun who played at the size that he was at in the NFL. That he he just, you're telling me he went 40 days without food? He went 40 days with an a water-only diet. No thank you. I don't know how you do that. Nothing's impossible, but no thanks. I like food way too much to even go a day without it. Moderation. <laughs> moderation oh yeah discipline that that is that discipline yeah i guess he says his entire worldview was shifting um he has a lot more clarity look at his before and after and acceptance look i know at his before it's, and after it's, well it's it's dramatic it's very dramatic. 40 days without a burger <laughs> will do that to you you're gonna have to change your wardrobe yeah how many days could you go without food you. None. None. No, 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 no. You have. You have. Like, come on. I, I've had a uh, colonoscopy. Okay. Okay. I know I can make a day. Okay? Yeah. How many days could you go without food? Without okay. eating food? Only liquids. Oh, oh only you liquids? You could eat soup. Okay. Let's say you can eat soup. Oh, I could go, I could go like five days with soup. Okay. With like bone broth. Steven, <laughs> can you go six? No, no. <laughs> Six days, no, thank you. I think I could probably get a day like you. Um, I, yeah, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Could you go? Could you imagine going forty days? No, I can't. But I would imagine I would look a lot better. I was looking at you know, like by the way, for people who don't know, all he did is drink water. Yeah, he lost fifty pounds in forty days. He. Uh, Do you know how hangry I would be after like day four? Yeah. That's a good point. My wife gets very angry yeah. as well. <laughs> no one would want to be around me. I would just be snarling and barking at people more than I do already. You'd, do you have, you'd like, have to go yeah. on like the Aaron Rodgers dark retreat at the same time. <laughs> right. But, but there have been a lot of, you know, he played at 310 pounds in the NFL. Okay. Uh -huh. he, he was 
a big yeah. human being yes. in the NFL. And you do see a lot of former players who will not have long lives mm-hmm. because they're giant. Yeah. And it's not good for their heart. It's not, you know, they're carrying a lot of weight around and diet's not great. You know, once they stop playing, you see NFL offensive linemen who it's not unusual to see them not make 84 years old or 74 years old or whatever normal life expectancy is for yeah. a human being these days. What is normal life expectancy for a human being? Mm, I don't know. But what, he's, what would only, you say he's only 192 pounds now. And he's saying. It's it's really not all about losing the weight. He was just saying that as he transitioned out of the NFL, he yeah. had a lot of questions about the world. Life expectancy in the United States, 77. Okay. That's so, it? 77. Um, by the way, like, you know, it's interesting. He, he tweeted out on July 12th that 90% of the foods available in your grocery store today did not exist a century ago. There were no Fritos. There were no Tostitos. There were no Bugles. There were, you know what I mean? Like, 90% did not exist. He says he's done with processed foods. He's done with pesticides on his crops. Um, you know. Well, he's speaking a lot of wisdom there. I don't know if uh, is he tweeting with a sound mind on day 36 though? You know, like you know what I mean? (laughs) Day 36. The body is a vessel for our past experiences and memories. I don't know how much of that is him and how much of that is he's hungry. I kind of need my Cool Ranch Doritos, by the way, too. Yes. I, mean, I don't know. He's, yeah, those July would be really 10th, hard to give up. Huh? July 10th, day 35. You must take control of your appetite. No one will do it for you. Drop the late night snack. Like the sour cream and onion Lay's chips that I just had before <laughs> coming on radio. Did you really? Those. Oh, yeah. I just stood in the kitchen like a, like a feral animal. Shoving them into my mouth. Day 34, Okun's tweet. Teach your children, only date to marry, build a family, and own a farm. Oh. That's what you tweet when you're hungry. Yeah. Okay. 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 I'm going to keep going here. Here he is on day 33. Fasting is the life hack. Short Mm. day. He Again, he's hungry. Um, I don't know. Only water. That's crazy. I know. What would happen to my blood sugar with only water? Yeah, for... you'd probably go into some kind of shock but and like, have to go to the know, ER. I can't go two hours. I know. I know. It's incredible. Anna, thank you for enlightening Five at Five. Yeah. Imagine that your belly is a balloon during this commercial break, and right now, imagine that it's deflated. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Well, if you were listening to today's Five at Five and heard Anna talk all about the 5 at 5. You're going to want to tune in tomorrow where you can win two pairs of Mariners tickets if you happen to be able to answer the question about today's 5 at 5. Meaning, you are uniquely qualified because you paid attention as she talked about Steve Young and John Pay and uh, coaching flag football. And she talked about uh, Russell Okung uh, fasting for 40 days. And she talked about... Um, Uh, All sorts of things. We'll ask you a question specifically about the 5 at 5. As as, uh, a a loyal listener of this show, you are uniquely qualified to be able to answer that question better than anybody else. So uh, membership has its privileges, as they say. Um, Stephen, by the way, you know, on the element of fasting, people always say that fasting is good for you. And 
that it, uh, you know, helps reset your body. You shouldn't do like a fast like that without serious medical supervision. And Okung did have his blood drawn and he was monitoring his weight and his sleep duration and his heart and his glucose and his oxygen saturation and his body temperature throughout all of that. So um, I just want to point that out, that people shouldn't just embark on a 40-day fast because you heard Russell Okun did it. Uh, consult with your medical professional. I want to say that because I don't want to lose listeners, okay? I don't want people to put their uh, health in, in danger, okay? Can I say that? I think that's that, fair, fairly said. Fairly said, yeah. Is it a uh, good thing to say, uh, as they say? Okay, so I've been tweeting out. I don't know if you noticed this. But I've been really interested in tweeting out the over-under win totals for college football teams in the Pac-12, along with the schedules of the Pac-12 teams. And I want to rip through these real quick because I find a couple things interesting. Number one, um, I have access to uh, being able to see, you know, how uh, how these tweets are performing because. Uh, I'm, I've just kind of been, they're all in one place for me on my timeline. And so I'm interested in, I found something interesting as, as I tweeted out every Pac-12 team's schedule and the over-under in Las Vegas in the sportsbook for their season. It was really interesting to me that the two programs that had the most engagement were not Oregon and Oregon State. They weren't Oregon and Washington. They weren't Oregon and USC. It was Colorado and Utah that people most wanted to kind of engage and debate and talk about. So the Colorado fans and the Utah fans on my timeline have been mixing it up with their teams. But I want to rip through these. The Oregon Ducks over-under win total is 9.5 for this season, Stephen. Portland State is the season opener, then at Texas Tech, then Hawaii at home, then they have home games in the Pac-12 against Colorado, Washington State, Cal, USC, and Oregon State. They're on the road at Stanford, Washington, Utah, and Arizona State. Over-unders nine and a half. What say you, Stephen? You like the over or like the under for Oregon season? I, I would lean over, I guess, but I think this really hinges on the Week 2 game at Texas Tech. If they can win that game, I think 10 is very, very viable. If they lose that game, I think 9 is very very likely in that situation as well because I don't think they can run through the Pac-12 and get through that you know the tough schedule that they got. I, I think you know USC. I mean uh, with Washington, Utah, you know, USC, and Oregon State, I can't see them winning three of those four. Two a two, two and two would sound about right. So I think if they can get that Texas Tech win, I think they're ten. If they lose, I think it's at nine. I think there's about a seventy percent chance they beat Texas Tech. I just think they're better. Than Texas I, I think that's just, it's a so, tough game yeah. though. At, I mean, yeah. true road game, week two, Lubbock, Texas. Uh, Tyler Shuck, former Duck quarterback. I don't know, old Bo Nix. Come on, old experienced Bo Nix. I I think I think they're going three and zero in their non conference games. I I have Colorado as a win. That's four at Stanford. That's five. They're going to beat Washington State at home. That's six. They're going to beat Cal at home. That's seven. They're going to win at Arizona State. That's eight. So the games that are left that I'm up in the air on are at Washington, at Utah, home against USC, home against Oregon State. Even if they go 2-2 two and two in those games, that's a 10-2 and two season. So I'm going over on the Oregon Ducks. I think they have 10 wins, maybe 11 written all over them. Even if they lose the Texas Tech game, I still think they could get to 10 wins. So I'm going over the 9.5. 
Your, your official pick, is it over or under? It's over. I'll take the over. Okay, there we go. We agree on that. Oregon State, win total, eight and a half. Uh, the Beavers will open at San Jose State. Then they are home against UC Davis, home against San Diego State. They are uh, on the road at Washington State to open Pac-12 play on September 23rd. They're home against Utah, at Cal, home against UCLA, at Arizona, at Colorado, home against Stanford, home against Washington, at Oregon. Eight and a half is the number. Steven, what do you say? Sadly, I, I, I'd go under on this one. I think... I think that the Pac-12 schedule for them is tough to start at Washington State and then Utah. Utah always is a problem for Oregon State. We saw that last year. You know, that was the one one loss that they had that they really had no chance in, and I think that could happen again. And then starting at Washington State, we saw what happened with the Ducks last season going up to Pullman. That was a tough game where they probably should have lost that game to the Cougars. They pulled it out. I think that start is going to be tough. And then you're going at Oregon, um, you know, at Washington. I believe is uh, where they're going as well. So yeah, they're home against Washington. Sorry, home against Washington. Yeah, uh, at Oregon. I think at Oregon. At, at, and they got home against UCLA. Yes, yeah, home against Utah. Seven, seven to eight wins. I think is very likely for Oregon State. I'm still not sold on DJ Uyunglele taking that step and being being the guy. I have a lot of questions on the defensive side, losing all those leaders that they yeah. had. I, I think seven to eight that's wins fair. sounds about right. I think the defensive questions are fair, and I think that's where this season sits. You know, if they can play well on defense, if Trent Bray's defense can be decent or better, I think they can get to nine. And I, I, I'm i going to say over, but only because here's how I see it breaking down. I think they win the opener at San Jose State. They come back again. They beat UC Davis. I think they win the San Diego State game at home. Again, Research Stadium, this is a team that is 11-1 in their last 12 at Research Stadium. They're only lost three-point loss to USC. I think they're just gonna, the, you know, they're lethal at home. I think they're three and zero to start. They go to Washington State to open Pac-12 play. I'm giving them a win there. I'm gonna skip over Utah just for a second. They're at Cal on October 7th. That's a win. They're at Arizona October 28th. I'm iffy on that one because I think Arizona's gonna be better than advertised. But I'm gonna give it to them. That's six. They're at Colorado. That's seven. Home against Stanford. That's eight to me. So I think they have eight in the bank. Here are the tough games though. Home against Utah, home against UCLA, home against Washington, at Oregon. Can they win one of those four? If they do, I think they can win nine games. If they win two, I think they're a 10-win team again. I'll go over, but I think they're going to end up at nine wins for the season. I think Oregon State wins nine, and I'll take the over. You're saying? I'm saying the under. I think initially looking at the schedule, I think that Washington State game, first pass, it's a loss. I think that one. And then I'm with you. Arizona is going to be a tough one. I have that as a loss as well. I have them at seven right now, but I think seven to eight is about right. The the thing that is interesting is they get, they have, of the five contenders, they have the best schedule because they have Utah, UCLA, and Washington at home. The only team they have to go on the road in the top five and play is Oregon, and they skip USC. So I think there's a you know a little bit of advantage there, but they have to win at Washington State, they have to win at Cal, they have to win at Arizona, and they have to win at Colorado to have a great season. I, I, Those are the make or break games for me. Well, let me ask you this because you know they lose so much on the defensive side. Are we tr- are we putting so much trust in Trent Bray to be able to yeah. plug and play right away? Because you're losing Jaden Grant, who was there forever. Alex yep. Austin, Jack Kalina, like all these guys you lost on defense, is it really plug-and-play time and Trent Bray going to coach them up and they'll be right back to where they were last season? 
It the and and also you're talking about losing a key defensive player and Omar Spates jump into yeah. the SEC. So I there there's there's big defensive losses and I you know I had a couple of Oregon State fans ask me and one in the mailbag at johnconzato.com asked me you know should I be worried does this feel like the hangover season after the Fiesta Bowl? Remember they went to the Fiesta Bowl they won let went eleven and one Jonathan Smith came back, uh, you know Ken Simonton came back. And all of a sudden, Oregon State was not very good. Uh, I think they were five and seven, seven. You know, they were not a they were not a bowl team after going to the Fiesta Bowl. So, but they lost a whole bunch of receivers. They lost a bunch of defensive players after that game. I think this one to me feels like, hey, defensively, can they fill enough? And offensively, are they better? But you're right. They had a seventh year senior in Jaden Grant playing safety on the field. I mean, it was a coach on the field. And I and I do think the difference is offensively. Jonathan Smith proved even with Gilbranson, you know, not being the most talented guy, they won ten games. Like I'm not worried too much about that offense. It's all about the defense for me. And maybe Trent Bray is that guy where he's the next up and coming defensive coordinator star. And if that is, they can get to nine ten wins. I, I just need to see it before I can you know put if I had to put money on it that I would go with the under. Let's go to Washington. The Huskies. Over-under win total is nine. Let's use nine. DraftKings is using nine. Everywhere else is nine and a half. So the question is, can they get to ten if you're batting it everywhere else? Uh, And uh, obviously, um, the Huskies will start with Boise State. They are home against Tulsa uh, to start the season at Michigan State in a tough game in week three. Then home against Cal at Arizona, home against Oregon, home against Arizona State at Stanford, at USC, home against Utah, at Oregon State, home against Washington State. Do they get to 10? I think they do. I think they get to ten, maybe even eleven. I got the I got them losing to USC, and that's really the only like loss that I think that I'm marking down right now. I think Washington has a chance to be really good. And maybe I'm a little, you know, jumping the jumping the ship a little bit with second year Kalen DeBoer, but I love what they did offensively last season. I don't see how that drops off. And you know, now that they have the target on their back, they played well at the end of last season with that target on their back. I, I love DeBoer as a coach. I love Penix if he can stay healthy. I think they're over uh, and they get to double digits. I think they start the year eight and zero, and and that would give them a win over Oregon on October fourteenth at Husky Stadium. Well, because that I mean that's really the only tough game they have in yeah, the first eight. First eight. But look at their final four. Their November is bloody November. It's at USC, home against Utah, at Oregon State, home against Washington State. And keep in mind, we just talked about Oregon State. The Beavers will be getting the Huskies after they've played USC and Utah in back to back weeks. Do not dismiss that as a potential advantage this is not washington coming off a bye going to research stadium this is washington going to research stadium tough place to play after having just played usc and utah in successive weeks i think they start eight and zero, and i think they end up with 10 wins i think they're going to split the final four games of the season go two and two kind of back their way into potentially the conference title game or a big mess at the end where they could be sitting on 10 wins oregon could be sitting on 10 wins uh, you know, maybe USC, Utah, Oregon State, all right around eight, nine, ten wins. I think there's going to be a real logjam at the end. That, but I will take uh, Washington over. I think they can get to ten because they're starting eight and zero, and I think they end up ten and two. So I'll go over. What did you do? Yeah, I'm going to take the over as well. So if it goes like you think it does, I mean, Washington could be top five, top three yeah. in the college football world. You know, going into the last four, and it's going to be, you know, can they get to the college football playoff for the Pac-12? 
it would be really interesting to see that gauntlet. USC, Utah, at Oregon State. Then they get the Apple Cup to finish the year. That's the way Washington finishes. All right, we'll break down the rest of the Pac-12 coming up. Leave it here. you got the BFT. Well, we've been talking about Pac-12 uh, over-under win totals. Oregon, Washington, I've got them both at 10 wins. I've got Oregon State sitting right around nine wins right behind them. If I had a little more faith in the Beavers' defense, uh, they'd be right there. Let's pivot to Washington State. Over-under total is uh, six-and-a-half at most places. The Cougars are replacing both their offensive and defensive coordinators this season. They have non-conference games at Colorado State, home against Wisconsin, home against Northern Colorado. They uh, play home games in the Pac-12 against Oregon State, Arizona, Stanford, and Colorado. They go on the road to UCLA, Oregon, Arizona State, Cal, and Washington. Steven, how many games does Washington State win? Uh, I got them on the under here. It has five and seven, five and seven written all over it to me, John. I, I think they, they get the Colorado State game, uh, but then Wisconsin, I think they lose. Oregon State, I think they lose. At UCLA, is going to be tough. I don't see many you know, comfortable wins on that schedule. Colorado State, Northern Colorado. I mean, if you want to count Stanford, I guess that's three. Can they get three more wins? I don't see it. Five and seven seems perfect. I think we agree on this one. At Colorado State's tougher than advertised. Tough place to play. Yes. I've seen teams go in there and lose, but let's just say Washington State wins that game. I'll give them one. They're home against Wisconsin. They beat Wisconsin a year ago. I don't think it repeats. I think they're one and one to start the season, best case scenario. They beat Northern Colorado. They're two and one going to Pac twelve play. I'm having a hard time finding wins for them in Pac-12. And, and I think, yeah. you know, and I said this last segment, I think Oregon State at Washington State is going to be a tough game. And even if they get that win, I have them at six, which is you know a tie. So, I, or, you know, a push. I think six is about the best they can get this season, looking at their schedule, like you said. Yeah. Oregon State, I'm going to call that an Oregon State win. I think they lose at UCLA. I think Arizona could, could give them a handful. Oregon's going to beat them. I think their wins in the Pac-12 come at Arizona State. Stanford at home, maybe at Cal, home against Colorado. Even if they win all of those games, I have them, you know, five, six wins. I can't see them getting to seven. So uh, I'm for that reason, I'm going to say six and six for Washington State. I'll take under six and a half. You? Yeah, I'll take uh, I'll take the under. Let's move to Utah. This is a big one. A lot of fans debating this one. Over under is eight and a half. They have Florida. At home in uh, in the opener, then at Baylor, home against Weber State, conference games, home against UCLA, home against Cal, home against Oregon, home against Arizona State, home against Colorado, on the road at Oregon State, on the road at USC, on the road at Washington, on the road at Arizona. Tough conference schedule. Maybe the toughest conference schedule among the contenders. How do you see the eight and a half? I got it under John, and it may be – one of these things where if they can get to 2-0 and and they can beat Florida and Baylor, I think get to 9, but I think they split those games. I think right now they beat Florida, they lose to Baylor, and they get to 8 wins because you're right, that that schedule is brutal. It's, wor- and, it's the worst schedule among the contenders. Yeah, in the Pac-12, and I, I may look stupid at the end because Kyle Whittingham's proven everybody wrong before, but I got him at 8 wins, so I got the under on Utah. I think, uh, I, think I'm, uh, I see him at 8 as well, and for, and the reason is, look, we also don't know Cam Rising's health. We're, I'm going to talk to him on Friday, be interested to see how his surgery went and whatnot. But, you know, I keep 
doubting Utah, and they make me pay for it. Remember, like, we looked at them a year ago, and we were like, okay, can they really repeat? Yep, they came back, and they repeated. The trouble for them is I don't love how the schedule lines up at USC, home against Oregon, at Washington, at Oregon State. They're playing all of the contenders. They skip nobody, and they play Oregon State, USC, and Washington on the road. They also have Baylor on the road in Week 2. Florida's at home. Let's just say it goes well for them and they start 3-0. and Conference play is UCLA, Oregon State to start. Those are two co- tough conference games to start. And then, you know, I just I think it could be a step-back season for Utah. I see them at 8-4. and four. I'll say under the 8.5. I totally agree with you. I think eight and a half is uh, if it's eight and a half, you got to go with the under. If it's eight, I'd still go with under. I, I just don't see how they're going to get through that schedule. When you look at the Pac-12 games, I mean, it's 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 what it's Arizona State and Colorado are your for sure wins. Everything else, Cal, I guess those are your for sure three wins. Yeah. After that, they skip Stanford. They don't. You know, it's just a tough schedule. Yeah, after that, it's a toss up every other game. Let's go to Colorado. The over under is now three and a half for Colorado. A little opportunity, maybe. They're at TCU to start. Nebraska and Colorado State at home in weeks two and three. Then it's at Oregon, home against USC, at Arizona State, home against Stanford, at UCLA, home against Oregon State, home against Arizona, at Washington State, at Utah. Tough schedule, year one, Coach Prime. Win totals three and a half, Stephen. What do you got? I mean, I would love for it to be three, John, but if it's three and a half, I'm still going over. I think Colorado gets to four wins. I think they beat either TCU or Nebraska to start the season, and they beat Colorado State. They're two and one heading to Eugene where they're going to lose, but I think all eyes will be on that game. College game day, game day could be there. I think they get to four somewhere. I, you know, It's so hard to know what Colorado is, John, but I do think four to five wins is where they could be at this year. I agree on it's hard to know where they're at. I want to raise a possibility here. Colorado State is not a pushover win for Colorado in week three, nor is Nebraska in week two, and they're going to TCU in week one. If they go 0-3 to start, I think they're 0-5, and they're facing what could be a one- or two-win season. If they can find one win in the first three games, whether it's Nebraska at home or Colorado State at home, I think they have a chance to go over. And I think a big part of this team is going to be psychologically Coach Prime keeping his players and his team engaged as they lose a lot of games in the early part of the year. And they they may not be in competitive games against Oregon and USC. But here's where I see them having an opportunity to win. I'll give them one non-conference game. I'll give them a win at Arizona State. I'll give them a win at home against Stanford. So they're sitting on three wins in mid-October. Now, can they find a fourth win? Here's how it finishes. At UCLA, nope. Home against Oregon State, nope. Home against Arizona, probably not. At Washington State, maybe. At Utah, not happening. So it's the Arizona and Washington State games. Can they split? Can they get a win there? If they can, I like the over. I like them to get to four. Do you think it's more likely Colorado has one to two wins or five to six wins? I think it's more likely they have one to two. But I, I, because I don't, I, Look, even if they started with a win against Nebraska, a win against Colorado State, they have two wins. They're not beating Oregon. They're not beating USC. So maybe they could beat Arizona State and Stanford. Now they're at four. But at UCLA, Oregon State, at Utah, I, I don't see it. I'll say, I'll say that the line is about right because I think they're a three- to four-win team. I'll go under just to be different than you. Right, I'll, I'll say Colorado under. You say Colorado over. Give me the over. 
All right. Tomorrow we'll break down the rest of the conference, including USC, UCLA, and the Arizona schools, Cal, Stanford. We made it halfway. Uh, the Bald Face Truth, not here for a long time, just a good time. Make sure you get a podcast of this show if you liked it. Share it with your friends and family. And again, mark the calendar. Friday, Pac-12 Media Day. We will be all over it from Vegas. I'll be interviewing Coach Prime, interviewing Lincoln Riley, asking the hard questions. George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, will be on the show. I'll press him on the media deal. I'll have more on the media deal and what he might say in the next 24 hours. Make sure you're reading me at johnconzano.com. You won't miss a thing if you are. Again, we'll catch you tomorrow. Appreciate everybody who makes this show part of their day. For Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn, I'm John Canzano signing off. The Bald Face Truth is out.